to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bella Sight Play, featuring Curtis, Welcome, D.S. Bennett, and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So, sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. Headlines, breaking news. It's another hurricane. Oh, no, wait a minute. It's an earthquake. Oh, no, it's another riot going on. Oh, the world is falling apart. Every day, another shocking headline makes you wonder, what will tomorrow bring? That's why those who know what's coming are using today to prepare. I'm talking about getting your family some high-quality emergency food from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is the nation's leading preparedness company. They've been in business going on 14 years now, and they've served millions of American families. Now, they want to help you by giving you $50 off their popular four-week emergency food kit. You'll get four weeks of food per person with meals designed to give you more than 2,000 calories a day. Oh, by the way, this food stays fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage. So it will be there when you need it. Other food goes bad fast. So don't wait. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and claim your four-week emergency food kit. You'll save 50 cents per 50 cents. No, not 50 cents. $50 per kit if you act now. Now, you can go to preparewithsouthernsense.com, or if you're listening to the show on my website, just go to the top left-hand corner, click on prepare. Go to Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Don't wait. Do it today. 
All right, and welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense, live on Blog Talk Radio. Um, where the heck are we, Curtis? Uh, Facebook, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. As a matter of fact, I'm having a little bit of a problem getting our video up onto <laughs> the thing. It's not going across. What the heck is going on here? All right, folks. You can't have a show with Southern Sense without something screwing up. <laughs> so, <laughs> welcome back to a new year. <laughs> and the same old screw-ups. Anyway, oh, man. Uh, we, Curtis, we have a lot to talk about. Oh, I didn't even introduce myself. <laughs> it's Andy, yeah, the radio nice chicken newcomer. And with Curtis C.S. Bennett, oh, man, (laughs) talk about starting off the new year on the right foot. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. We got ourselves a jam-up show here. Mm. It's jam-packed with great guests, starting off with Christina Dent. Now, this is going to be really, really interesting. She's got a foundation, a 501c3 called End It For Good where she wants to take a completely different approach to the war on drugs, uh, trying to decriminalize uh, narcotics and whatever. Uh, so it's going to be a very, very interesting conversation with her. You know, with my background in law enforcement, uh, I want to see what her take is, because somewhere along the way, you can't decriminalize any possession of uh, a controlled substance or illegal substance. Because you've got the dealers out there, and then you've got the users. Uh, you've got to penalize the dealers. You got, I, well, this is going to be the conversation we're going to have with her. And then we're going to have come back Julio P. Gonzalez. He's a tax expert, but he's also one of the counting today's top 100 most influential people in accounting. And then we're going to have Dr. Carol Lieberman. She's really interesting. She's got two different uh, podcasts she does. One is Dr. Carol's Couch. And the other is called the Terrorist Therapist. Uh, she's a forensic psychiatrist and an expert witness as well as a best-selling author. And then we're going to have Mark Tapscott from the uh, Epic Times come on. And Heritage Foundation is sending us back Dr. Lee Edwards. And he and I, we, we click off immediately. I love that man. Um, anyway, we got a lot to do and a lot to talk about. And uh, my my video player is acting up really crazy. I don't know what the heck is going on here. But I'm well, trying to we, pull up these. We certainly can't Go blame ahead, it on the snow. We can't blame no. it on the snow. We living in like snow-free zones. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, like, every like once that. in a while, we do get snow here. Every, I've seen it twice in the 21 years I have been here. Uh, just twice, but it is so mm. light, and it's so it's funny because it hits the HVAC uh, unit, which is right below my uh, living room window mm-hmm. uh, in the backyard. And as you watch the snow fall everywhere else and dusting lightly on the lawn, you see the HVAC activate, and the snow is going upwards, it's blowing it back up in the wow. air. It's really, really fun and cool. Looking. I've only seen snow in Florida twice. One with some snow flurries in Orlando that lasted like three minutes, and then one in Jacksonville that lasted almost all day. It was so new to Florida 
that they had to get snow machines and stuff from other states to come down because Jacksonville, Florida just wasn't accustomed to snow that lasts more than, you know, a few hours. This one lasted for days. So it was really weird back in the 80s. But I'm glad wow. there's no snow this year. <laughs> well, we've got a lot going on here. And um, unfortunately, my video player is not behaving properly. It's giving me dropped frames and everything else. I don't know what the heck is going on with this thing. I really do have to start trying to get that new system up, and I haven't been able to do it too much because I still am recovering from the the knee surgery. And I'm off the walker. I am now using a cane, but every now and then my knee will start to buckle because the muscles aren't strong enough just yet. I mean, when you consider what they do to make a, a total mm-hmm. knee replacement, and I this is a replacement of the replacement. So it's a little bit more, yeah, yeah, yeah. How long would it last, did they say? Well, the other one lasted 13 years. We'll see how long this one goes. Yeah. Anyway, um, unfortunately, I'm having, like I said, difficulty with the video stream. Um, I don't know what the heck is going on. It's like the program just kind of like froze on me. So we're just going to, wing it and hopefully it'll start coming back again as we go on but those that listen um, to our show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero and today's dedication is going to go out to Deputy Sheriff Christopher Wilson Knight of Bibb County Sheriff's Office in Georgia his end of watch was Tuesday April 6th of 2001 and This is from the New York Post by Joshua Rett Miller. And he writes, A handcuffed inmate stabbed two sheriff deputies inside a Georgia jail, killing one with his own knife, authorities said. Albert DeWitt Bowes, 22, attacked the deputies early as he was being moved to suicide watch after saying he wanted to harm himself at the Bibb County Law Enforcement Center in Macon, the sheriff's office officials said. Several deputies escorted Bowes to an observation cell, according to the statement by the Bibb County Sheriff's Office. Bowes was able to obtain a knife from one of the deputies and used that knife to kill the deputy. Deputy Christopher Knight, 30, was stabbed in the neck during the attack and was later pronounced dead at the hospital. A second deputy, Jerome Michael Williams, 32, was wounded, but has since been released from the hospital after being treated for his injuries. There are sometimes dangerous people that we deal with, and there's sometimes unpredictable and tragic things can happen, Bibb County Sheriff David Davis told reporters. These deputies come to work every day, knowing that they have a duty to perform and that there are dangers inherent in what they do and our hearts go out to them. Davis said Bose was handcuffed during the stabbing, WGXA reported. Investigators are working to find out how Bose obtained the knife, although deputies can carry them because they need to occasionally cut materials like bed sheets to save inmates during suicide attempts. It's unclear why Knight had a knife at the time. Bowes of Macon 
had been held in the jail since November on charges of criminal damage to property, criminal trespassing, and giving a false name to law enforcement. He had been moved to a new cell due to a disciplinary infraction, according to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. GBI investigators are conducting a criminal probe into Knight's fatal stabbing. The case will be sent to prosecutor once the review is complete. A separate internal investigation will look into whether the actions taken during the incident were in line with the sheriff's office policy. Knight had been employed with the sheriff's office since 2018. He survived by his ex-wife and a two-year-old daughter. And this is from 13 WNAZ. Law enforcement agencies from around central Georgia gathered at Macon City Auditorium to pay their respects to fallen Bibb County Deputy Christopher Knight as he was laid to rest. Knight was fatally stabbed and another deputy was injured in a fight with an inmate at the Bibb Law Enforcement Center last week. After processional and final viewing, Reverend James Head led the service with a prayer and scripture, reading of Psalm 23 before a selection by the Union Baptist Church praise team. It reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The program then moved to Reflections from Makem Bibb Sheriff David Davis, Makem Bibb Mayor Lester Miller, Knight's best friend Tyler Smith, and Knight's co-worker Lieutenant Chance Eady. Everyone you see around here is, is to grieve with you and support you in this time of deep sorrow, said Davis. He said, Deputy Christopher Knife began his career at Bibb Sheriff's Office in July of 2018 and seemed to have corrections work in his soul. He established himself to be a dedicated and resourceful member of the team, worked to foster a community environment among inmates and other deputies, said Davis. He was known as a go-to guy for other members of his squad and other members of the department when they were having problems or needed advice. Davis concluded saying Knight was becoming a leader and will forever be remembered as a young man on the move. He vowed the department will never forget Knight's commitment to the sheriff's office and his contributions to the field of law enforcement. Miller addressed recent events involving law enforcement around the United States. While the nation is in upheaval over incidents involving law enforcement, we are here in Macon, Georgia, celebrating and honoring the life of Deputy Christopher Knight, who lost his life in the line of duty 
seeking to secure protections of others, said Miller. He shared a story about when he recently ran into Deputy Knight at the grocery store. Miller said he thanked him for his service and the dedication to the department. I could look in his eyes and tell he loved what he did, and no one is going to take that away from him, said Miller. We don't always understand the concerns of those daily in law enforcement, but the reality of the burden is made plain to us. We are all in great debt. Words are not adequate. Knight's best friend, Tyler Smith, reflected on the familiar bond the two men shared. Even though I know he's gone, I can still feel him talking to me, said Smith. He was my family, too. I'm going to miss him. I'm really proud of the man he became because Chris didn't let anything stand in his way. He kept going. I am so honored to be his brother. I'm so honored to be his best friend. Knight's co-worker, Lieutenant Chance Eady, concluded the reflection portion of the service. He shared a story about when he was transferred and met Knight for the first time. He walked in with a confident walk. He said, I'm going to be your go-to person. And he was correct, said Edie. Anything I needed, I called Mr. Knight. He would always call me back and let me know when everything was completed. Edie also said Knight was a family man who deeply loved his two-year-old daughter, Zemariah, or as Knight sometimes called her, Z-Force. He loved his family during the weekends when he was off. He always looked forward to spending time with his little baby girl. He always talked about being with his family, his little angel, said Edie. A silent reading of Knight's obituary followed and was accompanied by a recording of his favorite childhood song, the theme from Jurassic Park, as composed by John Williams. Knight was then eulogized by Pastor David L. Stanley, the senior pastor of Union Baptist Church, who decried the pay disparity between law enforcement officers and professional athletes. The service concluded with a recessional to the song You'll Be In My Heart by Phil Collins. Knight will be interred in a private ceremony at the Macon Memorial Park Cemetery on Mercer University Drive. Today's show is dedicated to Deputy Sheriff Christopher William Wilson Knight. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation to today and into our future. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Harrington, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one. people 
freedom has never been free. Now my door's always open to dreamers and friends. You're here listening live to Southern Sons on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeart, Facebook, YouTube, and half a dozen other places. If you are watching live on Facebook and YouTube, uh, I'm not able to change the scenes, unfortunately. For some reason, the video has locked in on this one scene and won't let me move anything else around. Anyway, we're back. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, the Radio Chickadee, Annie, along with my courageous co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. 
Oh, man, Curtis. What a way to start off today. <laughs> you sure today's hey. not the 13th, Friday the 13th? No, I don't think there's one of those in this month. But, um, <laughs> hey, we we always um, end up on a smooth roller coaster ride. Uh, well, they're just going to be staring at me talking into the microphone for the next couple of hours. <laughs> so oh, uh, I feel sorry that I have to stare at this face for all that long a time. <laughs> it's 2022 technology we're dealing with now. Mm. Oh, man. Anyway, there's a lot going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got a little bit of a dry throat, so pardon me. I just want to pull up some little notes here that I had. <clears throat> You know, we talk about um, lamestream media, and that's what they basically have become. But here, um, American Action News, uh, Paul Crespo, always has some great, great articles. And he wrote that there's an investigative report has uncovered that the Washington Post owners at Amazon are working hand-in-hand on a despicable propaganda project with communist China. The project's goal is to sell a fake version of the brutal totalitarian communist regime in the West. Now, we got all these young kids coming up who embrace communism and socialism. Well, guess what? If they're out there on social media hitting things like TikTok, which, by the way, is run by the Communist Chinese Party, which why you will never see me on TikTok. So all these people are putting up all these weird videos. Anything goes on TikTok. Yeah, because the Communist Chinese control it, and they want to kill our moral values and our society. What better way than to do it through a social network? So it's TikTok, it's YouTube, it's Facebook. Oh, by the way, I finally got back in on Facebook last night after I was kicked off on December 10th. So my Facebook oh, you're back page, in I'm, there. I'm able to You're back to in the good graces. <laughs> back in the good graces um, again. Yeah, and so now Amazon um, has it where they're helping to support communist China. Now, I talked about this, what was it, last year or the year, whatever, that mm-hmm. you have to be careful what you purchase off of Amazon because a lot of these products are coming out of communist China. Well, guess what? If they're one of the major vendors on Amazon, don't you think Amazon, Amazon, Amazon is going to bend over backwards to kiss their sweet patootie? Don't you think so? So now Washington Post is partnering with Amazon to help push the propaganda of communist China. You heard it here, folks. As part of this joint pro-China propaganda effort, Amazon created a book-selling portal on the company's U.S. site known as China Books. Significantly, the key operative in this project... Now, does this name ring a bell, a blast from the past? Jay Carney, the former press secretary to Brock Hussein Obama? Huh? Yeah, I remember that guy. Who is now, he is now the global head of Amazon's lobbying and public policy operations. 
The transition from peddling fake news at the White House to shilling for communist China appears to have been a natural one for Jay Carney. These are the words of Paul Crispo. Um, Now, the Daily Signal is one of those that also rose this up. Uh, And they write, according to the Chinese government reports during the 2018 trip to Beijing, Carney promised an alternate member of the Communist Party Central Committee that Amazon would make every effort to promote China books and make it bigger and stronger. All right, folks, you heard it from me. Amazon now partnering with Communist China to pump propaganda. Now, it looks like our guest is here in the studio. Let's bring her on. And as soon as my computer starts to behave, there we go. want to welcome to the show Christina Dent, who founded End It For Good. Good afternoon, Christina. How are you doing? Hey, Annie. It's great to be with you. I'm doing great. Yeah, now, um, I was going over your website and reading your articles and everything, and uh, I don't know if they told you that I am a former New York City police officer. I so did I not also, know that. I also have a very unique perspective on this subject. Now, there was a lot of things I did agree with you on and some that we're going to have a conversation on. Um, and I love the way you always say it. We have a conversation. And my listeners know that the best way is to have a calm, cool, logical conversation keep the don't hurl names at each other don't yell at each other we can always find some sort of a common ground we can agree on and yet agree to disagree on other things and you have that same philosophy i love it yep my i I feel that so strongly that if we want to influence anyone you know you can you can hurl words at people all day long and usually that's just going to push them further away so if we if we want people to engage with the ideas we support and potentially support them too, um, that takes just being civil and being respectful and trying to understand where people are coming from and trying to find, like you said, those bits of common ground where we can say, okay, we do agree on this, and here's maybe where we disagree, and this is why, and, and we can still be friends, even if we disagree on something. Uh, there's so much to agree on that, that we all want. Oh, absolutely. Now, um, you started up this group called End It For Good, and you, you came because at one point you were like a lot of other people. You know, drugs are bad. Anyone with uh, uh, illicit contraband, uh, they deserve whatever they get. But you saw another side. And um, I've told this story a couple of times on air that I was sent to the hospital to guard a prisoner who was giving birth. And she was a junkie, and she was ranting, screaming, yelling, and, I mean, she was carrying on uh, begging for drugs, for epidurals or whatever. She wanted to get high while she was giving birth, and she was carrying on so loudly. But she was in a hospital where other women were in there to give birth, and they're not carrying on one-tenth of how this woman was carrying on. And I unloaded on her. I chewed her up one side and down the other. And finally she calmed down. And about a couple of years, not, maybe, not even a couple of years, maybe about a year, year and a half later, I'm walking through the housing project. And this woman pushing a stroller, called, you know, 
flags me down and she says, Officer, I'm so glad to see you. This is my baby. And she's a beautiful, beautiful boy. And she goes, you know what you did? She goes, you yelled at me in that hospital. And it finally got through to me. And she cleaned up her act and she had a healthy baby boy. She went on the right path. Uh So that's why I'm saying I'm looking at it from two different sides. That yes, Uh these Uh women, they, they do love their children. Uh, these men do love their families, but they've taken a wrong path and now got hooked. So you're finding a new way to help them. And a lot of what I see, I do agree with, but still there is a criminal element we do have to face and bring to justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my journey, that's that's such a great story. Um, I love hearing people's stories of sort of the, the things that have shaped them, the things they've seen in the world related to drugs and addiction and things like that. Yeah, you're right. I've had no um, introduction to this in my childhood. Was not I didn't have friends that were using drugs. I never used illegal drugs or even you know, smoked a cigarette in high school or anything like that. Um, I went to college. I have a degree in Bible um, from a Christian university. Never, never had drug use as part of my experience and kind of supported really tough policies and, uh, you know, thought if we just kind of um, make life really difficult for people, uh, that will help them stop making these poor decisions. And my journey of kind of reimagining how I understand um, what drives addiction and maybe how to reduce the harms of addiction and reduce addiction itself started for me through being a foster parent. And um, that was what brought me close to addiction for the first time was meeting the mother of one of our foster sons and um, she uh, you know we came to the local child welfare office for his first visit and I got his car seat out of the van I turned around in the parking lot um, and she was running across the parking lot towards me just weeping and she you know it had been a week or so since she had seen her son he came straight to my house from the hospital after he was born um, because she had used drugs while she was pregnant, and um, so he was put in foster care. And that just, it, it was kind of this immediate sense of suspicion. Uh, you know, if you love your child, wh- why are you doing something so harmful, like using drugs while they're pregnant, uh, while you're pregnant? And so I, it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, but the more that I got to know her, the more I saw um, just how much she is a mom like me who uh, desperately loved her son and loved him just like I love my boys and um, wanted to be free of that addiction, uh, had struggled with it for many years and had not been able to be free from it. And so it really just gave me a, it was kind of like a, a question mark in my mind of, wait a second, okay, I'm seeing something that doesn't fit with what I have always thought before and I wonder if there's a better way for us to get better outcomes for people like Joanne and for babies like Beckham um, where we have more families that are able to thrive and fewer families that are experiencing uh, number one the harm of you know exposure to drugs while a baby is uh, in the womb but also you know post birth uh, how do we help more families build thriving lives where they're not um, consumed by addiction or um, destabilized by a criminal justice interaction. And that's probably where where you and I have some differing opinions about that. And I 
I totally recognize that for some people, like the woman that you um, were talking to, it can be this kind of moment of awakening. Um, and so there is that element. And I think, um, you know, there's no, there's no part of me that says that's not true. Certainly it can be true. Um, and yet I've, I've become convinced statistically and in talking with people that for the majority of people, um, it's not that experience, um, not because uh, the criminal justice system isn't doing its best to try to help people change their lives or officers aren't wanting people to change their lives. I don't think officers enjoy arresting people over and over again. Um, but just because that the fundamental nature of what drives addiction is, uh, is uh, it tends to be um, trauma and disconnection and um, you know loneliness and depression and anxiety, all of these different things that that people are struggling with and numbing those difficulties through drug use. Um, and so when I kind of look at that and look at big picture, what would be maybe the most helpful way for the most people to address uh, substance use and addiction, um, I've become convinced that, that switching to a, a health-centered approach like we handle other health crises um, and even other kinds of addictions is maybe the best way for us to get better outcomes, you know, more families together, more parents in the home, more children growing up um, in homes with parents present. Um, we know that's the best way for kids to grow up. So that's kind of where, well, where my journey of, of learning and coming from came from. Well, normally when I would interact with someone, it's because a crime has been committed. Mm -hmm. But also what people don't realize is that law enforcement officers are in a way social workers at the same time. Not all mm. calls are because of a crime. Um, it could be calls for help for whatever reason that you may end, end up interacting with people. But usually when we got someone that was an addict that we were arresting, it was because they did something, they committed some form of a crime, whether it was an assault, uh, a burglary, uh, a car theft, you know, there's a, a crime, but then there's the underlying fact, factor that they may be an addict. And you don't always know all the time. Once you start interacting with the person over a period, then you don't realize that, hey, this person has an addiction, whatever. But our hands are kind of like tied so that when mm -hmm. we make the arrest, you can't put down that this person's a drug addict or an alcoholic. There's, there's nowhere to, for us to communicate that. So once they go mm. in the system, even if they are being rehabbed, once they're released, there is no path. Once they exit that jail or they're released waiting trial, whatever, there's no halfway house they go to to help continue that rehab. Uh, whoever releases the person, be it a judge or the district attorney, there's no follow through for treatment. And there's a huge step that is missing right there which then makes the person mm. a repeat offender because they're going to go out, get the drugs, commit another crime to get the money for the drugs, and end up back in our care. So th yeah. there's a step that is missing so that once yeah. they are admitted to a, a jail or a prison, the medical exam should then at some point say, this person is a drug user, this person is an alcoholic, recommend intense therapy and rehab to help them you know, get off whatever it is. There's nothing, as mm -hmm. far as I know, there's nothing in the system for us to do. 
Yeah. And what I've heard from a lot of um, law enforcement officers, so now with the work that I do with End It For Good, so I kind of went through this journey of changing my mind, um, ended up kind of inviting more people onto that journey to consider changing their mind about how we approach drugs and addiction and founding a nonprofit. Um, and so we work mostly in Mississippi. We do some work nationally as well um, called End It For Good. But one of the things that we do here is we've done all of these different um, discussion events. So we go and hold an event in a community. People come. I give a presentation on the journey and research that changed my mind. And then we host dialogue. So the vast majority of the time of our events is actually dialogue with attendees who are giving their feedback. You know, I agree. I disagree. These are my questions. And we've had a lot of law enforcement officers and judges who have come to those events. And um, one of the things that they consistently um, say is what you just said, is the frustration of, you know, we're, we're out there. We're the ones kind of tasked with dealing this with this, but we are not equipped for this. We're not social workers. We're not mental health professionals. We're not addiction counselors. Um, but that's how the system is kind of set up right now, is to feed people first to law enforcement, um, and for a lot of those people, uh, that's not, you know, the, the primary problem uh, for them. But I loved the point that you made about kind of the difference between, okay, are we just talking about somebody, um, you know, who uh, maybe is in, in possession of a substance but hasn't harmed anybody, or are we talking about somebody who is, you know, stolen someone's car or stolen their lawnmower or whatever, broken into their home? Um, so that's a big distinction. So even in the change of mind that I've had about the criminalization of things like um, drug possession, um, I would never say, you know, hey, we should just let people do whatever they want to. If they commit crimes, if they hurt people, you know, well, we just got to, uh, you know, be compassionate. They're just struggling with an addiction. Got to let them do what they want. No, 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 not at all. Um, and I think that is where uh, drug courts have been. Um, uh, that's where I think kind of their place uh is their best use is is with let's say it's a crime where you know somebody stole somebody's lawnmower and sold it to get money for drugs which you know the vast majority of all property crimes are committed by someone in active addiction who is committing the crime in order to get money for their addiction um so if we have that kind of situation yeah we can put them in jail for six months or a year uh, and just like you said, they're going to come right back out. We haven't dealt with the addiction, and they're going to go right back out and go steal something else from someone else. Uh, it has not fixed the problem. And so what, what drug courts do is allow people um, to have the, the option to say, okay, if you would rather enter this program, um, you can go through a drug court for you know one to three years, and you have to take drug tests. You've got to maintain sobriety. You've got to go to you know meetings, whatever it is that they set forward for you. Um, but it's a way to to handle the root cause of that crime rather than just putting someone in jail to punish them for the crime, and then they get back out and they go right back to doing what they were doing uh, before. Um, and so, you know, there's there's I see helpful things happening. Um, I would not be a proponent of doing you know drug courts for drug possession because I, I I've changed my mind about the helpfulness of arresting people for possessing a substance. Uh, but definitely, there's a lot of crime that's committed by people because of their underlying addiction. And the more that we can pivot to addressing that underlying addiction, the better it is for society, That you know, the safer our communities are. Well, here again, you and I lead the conversation because you say possession, and people think, all right, the person's got maybe a joint or two on them, may have one or two pills on them. But what do you do with the person that has a whole pharmacy on them? 
Now, that's a dealer, and that's a possession, but you can't treat it the same way as the user who only has for enough for he, his or herself. Now you've got mm. someone that's... Mm-hmm. So you can't say possession and say, well, I'm not going to prosecute possession because then there's possession for use and possession for sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say so I kind of had two changes of mind. One is kind of related to um, people who are consuming drugs, should they be arrested for consumption? So that would be talking about a, you know, whatever, you know, the personal use amount of pills or a joint or a couple of joints or whatever. Um, but the other is kind of as I, as I got interested through Joanne and kind of what we're doing with drugs, um, and began learning about it, reading about it, um, I began to get interested in what's happening on the commercial side of drugs and what happens with a market when it is forced out of um, legality and how the underground market then comes in because there's still demand from consumers and they come in and fill that. Um, and it ends up creating lots of crime through gangs and cartels, terrorist organizations that are funding their activities through their participation in um, the underground drug market. Um, so so I ended up kind of taking a few steps back from the guy on the street who's got, you know, a whole pharmacy. That was a great way to put it because that's happening all the time, um, to say, why is he there? Why is that guy on the street with the whole pharmacy? Um, why is he part of a ring of people maybe who are, you know, all selling these drugs on the street? Why is the demand there to buy from somebody like that? Um, and when I kind of rolled that back a little bit, I ended up changing my mind about um, whether or not we should allow people to um, access drugs in some sort of legal way um, because, not because I want people using drugs, but because for the millions of people who already are, um, they're currently funding criminal activity through buying drugs in the underground market. Our communities are filled with crime that's caused by people participating in this underground market, by murders from deals gone bad, by, um, you know, violence to terrorize communities so that they can be kept kind of under the, under the thumb of, uh, you know, various cartels and things like that. Um, so I, th- I think there's, a, there's sort of a different case, I would say, for, for consumers versus the market, but I've become convinced that the market community harm from the market would be far less from some sort of legal um, option for access than from this kind of free-for-all, you know, anyone can sell anything. We don't know what's in it. It's contaminated. It's really potent. Um, It's funding criminal activity, and it's sold by people um, sometimes who are engaged in very harmful acts in the community, Uh, and yet the only way to address that underground market is to to allow the, the demand for it to be filled by something that's regulated, legal, tested, you know, controlled in some way. Well, something, something has changed in society because in the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, there used to be a public facility so that if you, you wanted whatever it was uh, that you were on, say it was heroin or crack or whatever, uh, and you would go to one of these public facilities and they would give you a different type of drug, one that would help you kick the habit. And um, they used to be all over the place. There also used to be mental health facilities. But somehow or mm. other, in the 90s, they all started to disappear. Uh, 
Now, these were actively helping people, the mental health facilities, uh, and these were overnight facilities that you'd stay there for a week, two weeks, a month, however long before you were able to kick your habit and be a valuable member back in society. But for some reason, the public, I don't know, the flavor or what a public atmosphere uh, just went against them, and they mostly all disappeared. You don't see these very, very often. And when you do see a rehab facility, it is for those that have the bucks to go into it. Mm, yeah. The average person on the street can't afford them because we've gone away from public mental health care to now, you know, whatever goes, goes. Yeah. Yeah, that's really sad. I, uh, one of the things I hope to see, and it seems like we're we're moving in this direction um, in some ways, is greater access to different kinds of treatment options. So, like you said, most people can't afford to pay for inpatient treatment for months at a time. You know, a 30-day treatment facility that that's not long enough for people who have a a, a deep addiction. Um, you can't cure that. That's not healed in in 30 days. People need a long time to be able to reorient their life around a different set of behaviors and patterns and finding a job and rebuilding connections with a family and all of those things. And most people don't have the resources to pay for um, the the cost of treatment. Some of them have insurance that will pay for it, but a lot of people don't. And, um, you know, I think, too, I'm a a big proponent of as many options as there are that can help people build a thriving life, uh, I would hope that we would allow those options to be accessed. Now, you can have different opinions about, you know, should the government be funding that? Should private, you know, nonprofits be funding that? Uh, That's a great conversation to have. But we certainly shouldn't be keeping people from accessing care that could help them. Um, So things like medication-assisted treatment, um, which is still sadly really controversial for um, opioid addiction, and yet the studies out there on medication-assisted treatment are that people who participate in it are less likely to die and they are more likely to enter long-term sobriety than people that participate in abstinence-only treatment. Now, that's not to say there's not a lot of people out in the world who have gotten sober through abstinence-only. Certainly there are. Um, but the relapse rates are really high. It's about 90% of people um, going through some sort of abstinence program that are going to relapse. And now in today's world where we have extremely potent drugs like fentanyl on the streets where people don't know how much they're getting, you can't dose it appropriately, um, that that relapse uh, is deadly for more and more people Um and so having something where people can, can take a step towards uh, a thriving life um, and participate and access something that we know is currently the gold standard in opioid addiction in terms of um, success rates, not in terms of sort of societal, you know, how people feel about it because there's a lot of uh, stigma around it because we we have so much value for abstinence, but if you just look at, who is staying alive and who is entering long-term sobriety, there are more people that are able to do that um, with some sort of of medical medication help than people without it. Um, 
So, you know, for just people to be able to access those things without stigma, to be able to access the things they think might help them um, build a thriving life for, you know, for Joanne, the um, mom that I got to know through foster care, uh, she ended up going through um, an abstinence um, treatment program. It was a government-funded program, but it was really unique in that it allowed moms and babies to stay together while the mom was in treatment, which when I heard that, when, when her son was in foster care with me, I was like, what? This sounds insane. You know, you can't trust addicted people. They don't care about their kids. How on earth would we be sending a child to a treatment center? That sounds awful. Um, and yet, when I brought Beckham up there, so she got settled there about 30 days after she went there, I brought him um, to the treatment center. It was, you know, two and a half hours away out in the middle of the Mississippi Delta. And I walked in and I saw, you know, there's dogs everywhere. They do pet therapy. Um, yeah, I met all of these warm, wonderful people, people so excited to see Joanne's son. And, and I just, I, I really saw this vision for, you know, they understand what moms like me value, which is, you know, really what every mom values, which is we understand that bonding is really important, that being separated from a newborn child does immense damage to a bond that a mother has with her child. And so for a mom who's trying to beat an addiction, um, Joanne would say this. She would say, you know, when I had Beckham with me there, so he goes to nurse, the, you know, they have a nursery on site. He goes to the nursery during the day while she's doing classes and getting treatment and therapy and all those things. And then he would be with her in the evenings and sleep with her in her, you know, dorm room kind of style at the treatment center. Um, and she said, you know, I had him there with me every night. It was a constant reminder of why I was doing this, why this was important, why I had to get sober so that I could be there for him. Um, and it was just incredibly helpful um, to her. And so looking at kind of outside of these traditional ways that we have thought people must do this and instead focusing on first, how can we keep them alive? Second, how can we reduce harm in their life? And then third, how can they build a thriving life and kind of allowing people to walk that in steps instead of just this sort of quantum leap? You know, you either have uh, a job, a home, a family, and a thriving life, or we really have no place for you. Um, but can we begin to create a culture where we focus on those stair steps for people? We celebrate each step they can take, and we try to remove barriers for them to build a thriving life. Christina. Uh, one of the things – oh, go ahead, Curtis. Hey, this is the co-host. I'm all in for the um, treatment side of the drug problem in the United States and the rest of the world. But what should we do about um, putting our resources in the enforcement side? I mean, I still believe we have a big major problem in America with the drug situation because of probably corrupt politicians and some in law enforcement. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I think I'm, I'm pro-law enforcement. I don't want, you know, <laughs> I want police in my community <laughs> because I want to be safe. So I, I think we have asked law enforcement to enforce laws that are um, in some cases unhelpful and in some cases counterproductive. Um, and so I would say, you know, I don't think we just, um, you know, 
don't fund law enforcement at all. Uh, what I think is, you know, can we switch some of the, the funding from funding um, the criminalization of people struggling with addiction or the incarceration of people um, for, you know, possession or even just an arrest? You know, a lot of people may not end up spending time in jail, and yet, you know, over we just released a research report on the war on drugs in Mississippi a couple of months ago, and we looked at this five-year period in Mississippi, and we had 5,000 people that were arrested just for possession, not possession with intent to distribute or anything like that on the sales side, just with possession of a, you know, controlled or illegal substance. Um, and so, you know, that's a lot of resources from an arrest, you know, going through a court system. There's a lot of funding that is still going to make all of that happen. Um, and I would love to see the funding that we're, we're we're putting into that shifted over into funding for either um, drug courts to expand those or funding for um, treatment. Uh, I'm not one who wants to see higher taxes, so you know. But if we could shift some of the funding we're already putting into um, the drug problem and put it into things that might actually help uh, decrease the harm. Um, and I think that's also going to help a lot with community trust in law enforcement um, and also with law enforcement's own uh, morale. There's a lot of law enforcement who are frustrated by, you know, arresting the same people over and over again or by people saying, you're not helping. You know, arresting my child is not helping anything. Why are you doing this? Uh, that doesn't that doesn't build morale for law enforcement. Um, and in the current climate that we have with law enforcement, where recruitment is a huge issue, um, I, I wonder if this is going to bring some of this a little bit to a head because there, we we have to focus our resources in law enforcement on what is the most important. So during the pandemic, we saw lots of law enforcement agencies stop arresting people for possession because they didn't want to arrest anyone that they didn't have to and put them in jail where, you know, it was harder to keep them healthy. And so that's a that's an interesting thing to think about that, you know, even as we were having these conversations around, you know, essential businesses, non-essential businesses, those things, um, that in the law enforcement world, there was a, a similar conversation happening, uh, maybe not termed that way, but around, you know, sort of essential prisoners versus non-essential prisoners. And um, and they, a lot of agencies um, just, you know, they didn't do it in a formal way. It was just, uh, you know, telling their officers we're, we're just going to hold off on arresting people for possession and focus on just arresting people who have committed a crime where, you know, someone's been harmed back to the, you know, somebody stole somebody else's car, things like that. So I think the shifting of resources could be really helpful, but really addressing that the core issues of the which laws are we going to ask law enforcement to enforce and where are we going to focus our resources? Are we going to focus it on solving violent crime um, and nationwide and here in the South and Mississippi where I am, uh, you know, violent crime arrest rates hover around 50%, um, which, you know, gosh, that's, that's a lot of people who have had somebody commit uh, a violent crime against them who are not receiving justice. There's been no arrest made in the crime that was committed against them. So um, I think a combination of those things would, would really improve um, the use of our law enforcement resources, the morale of our law enforcement, the trust of our communities in our law enforcement, that they are 
um, doing work that's really making communities safer. Uh, and all of those things I see is just incredibly helpful for building um, communities that are that are thriving and with people that are happy. Well, there's also going to be an idea that one size doesn't fit all. What may work in um, an urban area like New York City will not work necessarily in Biloxi, Mississippi. Um, mm, you've got mm-hmm. two completely different societies here. Now, in New York City, you have a problem with quality of life issues. I mean, we had cleaned the streets up under Giuliani. I, 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 I shudder to even think what they look like today. Uh, because of the way they went backwards. But when you went out there and you ended up arresting someone, say, for littering, you knew that on a block away or so there is a dealer waiting to see whether or not you're going to enforce whatever law it is. That means that cop is active and you start to set up shop, well, maybe I'm going to go somewhere else because they're handling quality of life. I'm going to be in their line of sight. So by enforcing these quality of lives, we helped push the dealers out of the neighborhoods. We helped clean up the streets where you could walk down the street without worrying about getting mugged. So, you know, like things like that will work in an urban area, but ignoring someone dealing or using only allows the dealers to come and say, hey, listen, it's a free-for-all. Anything goes. So, like I said, it can't be a one-size-fits-all. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think I would would um maybe my 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 pushback would just be to say why is the dealer there at all? Uh why are people not why aren't they dealing alcohol on the streets or you know is because we have we have taken that market out of the hands of uh you know people participating in criminal activity. Uh, gangs, cartels, uh, where it was during alcohol prohibition, and we've put it back behind age-restricted counters where we have law-abiding, tax-paying, regular citizens, you know, that are our neighbors and friends who own liquor stores. Uh, and we do have some harm from alcohol, way more harm from alcohol than we do from even something like opioids in terms of the numbers of people who die from alcohol-related illnesses every year. And yet we have determined as a culture that um, alcohol is is potentially harmful, and yet we had all of the harms of alcohol consumption plus all of the harms of a violent underground market for alcohol during alcohol prohibition, and we rolled that back, not because it created a, a perfect solution to the alcohol problem, but because uh, some sort of legal regulation of alcohol was better than the criminalization of it and the, the pushing of it underground and where there's dealers on street corners. And um, one of the, oh. the things I heard, I would be so interested in your take on this, Annie, from other law enforcement is the frustration of you arrest one dealer and somebody else has taken their place like by the afternoon because now the yeah. corner's open. And, you know, so it's like this never ending uh, because there's a profit incentive and everybody wants to make well, money. And so there's always going to be somebody else. Well, Christina, we've run out of time, and people can find you at enditforgood.com, correct? Absolutely. Well, Christina Dent, there's so much more to talk about. It's a very interesting website and interesting ideas, and good luck with it. Thank you so much, Annie. It's been awesome to be with you. Take care. All right. Um, Curtis, there is another 
uh, hand up in there, and I think that might be your friend Julio. So it looks like we've got two people on at the same time. Uh, I think okay, it's my I'll bad. Check. But this is, I do believe, uh, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Good afternoon, Dr. Lieberman. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Good afternoon. Amen. Uh, you've got a great podcast called Dr. Carol's Couch, as well as The Terrorist Therapist, and people can find you on that. Um, but everyone's talking about January 6th, uh, what happened a year ago. And uh, you've had some very interesting uh, interactions with that, where actually the kids of some of the people that were there in D.C. have been turning their own parents into law enforcement. I mean, how bad can a parent be to have the child turn on them? Yes, absolutely. Um, the significant, you know, when January 6th happened, there were two very uh, well-known kids who did this, but there were more. Uh, behind them, you know, there were some of these, they got so much media attention. One of them, uh, the boy was on CNN and, and he put a GoFundMe um, page up and he got I, I, over $100,000. But anyhow, the significance of this is uh, why we should be concerned, um, besides for those parents, is that it shows how deep the hijacking is of our children's minds by progressive schools, progressive teachers and schools, um, getting the kids to believe, you know, in their uh, politics and um, to be that upset and angry at their parents that they would turn them into the FBI and or the police. Well, Dr. Carroll, we also have another guest with us, so I'm going to bring him on also, uh, Julio Gonzalez. He's one of the top 100 influential people in accounting. But I want to bring in how this is going to affect our society because now we've got things like TikTok. Uh, Now even Amazon has partnered with Communist China to put propaganda out there. They've been trying to tear down our capitalist republic, and it's going to affect everyone, uh, not only societally, my teeth are in backwards, or even psychologically, but even our pocketbooks are going to be hurt by what's going on. So why don't I welcome uh, Julio Gonzalez in on the conversation here. Well, no, I appreciate that. I mean, the inflation is at an all-time high, right, higher than 40 years ago. Rent prices have gone up so high. I see this with my employees. I see it with everyone in the community. Gas prices are way up, right? Even our utilities, our food prices are going up. And a lot of these people are losing or those expired child credits and they missing some of the handouts that were coming in. And also, you know, Biden didn't get his you know, Build Back America plan passed, which would have had more tax credits and incentives for individuals. So all this hyperinflation is dramatic for everyone. Well, Dr. Carroll, how is this now affecting these kids? Don't they realize that the society that they're being brainwashed with and that is being pushed is only putting us deeper and deeper into a hole? Well, that's the thing. Um, you know, they they are – I mean, this is all heading toward – the whole point of uh, at least a lot of the Democratic Party is to destroy America – so that it would make it easier for socialism to come in. Um, for example, all the people who are, are quitting jobs 
um, and, you know, and staying home and getting, just getting government checks. Uh, you know, this is all these signs are getting closer and closer, uh, getting us as a country closer and closer to socialism because, and even with COVID, you know, the more that the uh, economy suffers, the more people are going to want to turn to the government for help. And that includes the kids. And the kids are the voters of the future. And so that's really what all of this uh, propaganda is about in the schools, you know, getting the kids to, to believe in all of this so that they will vote this way. Well, you know, Julio, they, they, we have an attack on middle America. I believe it's like something like 85% of uh, middle America, uh, Americans' wealth is in suburban areas. But now... Because of these mindsets, this sustainability uh, development and all these little other code words, uh, the going in and denying single-family zoning in suburbia and saying, no, you've got to have multiple. They're trying to make every single area an urban area, which means they vote Democrat, which is pushing us towards more and more towards socialism. I have to tell you about that. It feels dramatically identical to what my family and I experienced in Cuba in the 50s, and you saw it coming. You saw all the things that the Biden administration is putting into place. That's exactly what we went through with Castro, and ultimately, it's just the same set, but it feels exactly the same, and then we left, obviously, to come to the United States to have great opportunity, but boy, I mean, if you could feel what we felt in the 50s in Cuba, it feels dramatically the same today here. Well then, Dr. Carroll, how do we how do we handle this? How do we unbrainwash our kids and try to reclaim our republic? Well, we have to. Well, one thing that's um, I see it is a, at least two major things. One is um, that we have to um, make sure that the voting bill, Biden's voting bill that he's trying to get passed where it would be federal, uh, centralized federal voting and um, and uh, mail-in ballots, I mean, that would be, that's the end of, <laughs> that's the end of democracy. That's the end of uh, anything even near um, honest elections anywhere in the country. Um, and the other thing is, so we have to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then the other thing is, to um, teach kids uh, to, to clean out the schools, to clean out the schools from the teachers and the, and the school boards and uh, the, the principals, whoever is involved in um, not only in CRT and in um, these twisted sex ed classes, but also in regard to, um, to the progressive agenda. Oh, that you mentioned about the twisted sex ed, and I remember as a kid, back in the nineteen something, you know, whatever. Um, when they first brought in, uh, it was called uh, it wasn't called sex ed at the time, um, health ed or something um, like that. They were gonna they were te- they put their foot in the door and they were gonna teach you about uh, influenza and the human body, you know, blah blah blah. And it sounded so yeah. innocuous, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like biology yeah. almost. And they, once they put their foot in the door, you knew they were going to yank that door wide open, and they had. I mean, as a kid, I understood what they were doing. 
and it has been pushed so, so far that here, Julio, this has become a huge, major business now because now they have the LBGTQXYZ community out there uh, telling kids as young as five years old, you're gender fluid. This is, this is actually yeah. big business. There's money behind this. Yeah, yeah and, and look, you, both, you, you know, you both are so right, and thank goodness we didn't get the Build Back Better plan passed. Thank goodness for Mansion and Cinema, because ultimately there was a lot of money in that plan, trillions of dollars, to fund more of that kind of business, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. what that was all about, to continue to, to fund the education programs that are socialistic, to fund these businesses that you're talking about. That was all laced in that bill. You know, hopefully we stave that off till November, get some, you know, turn the house over, and then get back to a place where you're right. We can't. We have to have voter integrity, critical. We got to get the education piece resolved, and maybe that comes in 2024. You both are, uh, I think, right on track with what needs to be done. Wow, you know, there, there is so much more to be done. Matter of fact, they have a new DA mm-hmm. in Manhattan, New York City, and. Now, I, I've been saying this. There was, I think it was the New, New England Journal of Medicine that printed a study a number of years ago saying that the human brain is, is not sexually fully developed until around the age of 27. So the new DA took that, twisted it, and said if the person committed a crime and they're 25 or younger, their brain's not huh. fully developed, so I'm not going to prosecute them. Now, Dr. Carroll, does that make any sense to you? No, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So if someone murders somebody and they're 20, I mean, you know, it doesn't because, like, in a lot of places, um, kids, uh, like, let's say, Ethan Crumley, for example, in Michigan, he's being prosecuted as an adult. So how do you go backwards in some states, you know? Obviously, they think, I mean, he hasn't been, uh, he hasn't been on trial yet, but, but at least um, he is being prosecuted as an adult. Um, so how do we say in some states these kids are adults, you know, for some crimes and and uh, not adults for other crimes? I mean, it's just a smokescreen. Yeah, because I, I do remember some of my CPL, the criminal procedure law, uh, from uh, back when I was working in the beat there. And I do remember that as young as 13, children can be uh prosecuted as adults, provided they committed certain crimes, such as murder, rape, kidnapping. Um, other crimes, they can then be tried as juveniles. So, you know, if, if, if we knew that the child is responsible for their actions at the age of 13, they're definitely responsible for their actions at the age of 25. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, I mean, New York, I mean, I'm a New, I'm a New Yorker. Well, I mean, I live in California now, but uh, I was born and bred in New York. And over these last several years, you know, with de Blasio and Cuomo and uh, and now Adams, I'm not sure he's going to be any better since he supported the DA. Um, but, you know, I, it just makes me, uh, makes my heart break to see how New York has been destroyed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... There's there's so much of the economic loss in New York, Julio. I mean, they're fleeing New York, they're fleeing California, and they're coming south to us. That's a huge transfer of wealth from the north to the south. 
Mm. Well, those are the only two states that raised taxes during COVID. So you have to wonder, not only did they raise taxes, but they shut down businesses. And now, you know, in Manhattan, they're forcing the mandatory mandates for vaccines, which is creating more problems because now people aren't coming into work. And so you're dealing with economic downturn at the highest level in these two states. And you're right, their tax base is eroding and leaving. So what do they have to do? Raise taxes. And who gets hit with that? You know, it's everyone left, right? And um, this is just, you know, tragic what's going on in these two states. Well, how many businesses are fleeing also? I mean, AOC managed to chase out Amazon uh, that would have had a great employment there pre-pandemic. Yeah. So I'm yeah. – uh, but the, the mental health issues now that are descending on the people that remain in New York City, especially Manhattan, has to be tremendous because uh, with this COVID pandemic, we do see a rise in alcoholism – a drug abuse, uh, suicide, uh, that just live in New York has to be a mental stress. Dr. Carroll? Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, I always thought about uh, maybe be coming by coastal or moving back to New York, although it's, I mean, that's impossible at this point. Um, there's no way. I mean, it's so depressing. Not that we don't have homeless in, in Los Angeles, but um, it's not like what is on the streets of New York. Not only that, but the crime in New York, the, um, I mean, I look at the uh, New York Post pretty much every day, as well as other things, but I look at that, and there are, um, most days, there are people being shot in the streets in broad daylight. I mean, that would never be, that, that was unheard of before. And, of course, now, if they're not going to be, uh, you know, sentenced to jail, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, because um, there was a clip up on uh, news, uh, Newsmax yesterday uh, showing you know, officers going into a call, and the female officer is shot. And I'm yes. also wondering about the level of training that NYPD is putting out there, because as I'm listening to her talking to the radio, she calls the 1085, I'm shot. I'm sorry, that's not the call that should be. It should be a 1013. 1085 is I need assistance, get here when you can. A 1013 is you better be here five seconds ago. Mm. I've responded enough to that. I just couldn't understand why she was calling a 1085, but the stress mm-hmm. these officers are under that is yes, probably yes. why she confused her radio calls. But you know, I'm sorry, you shoot me, I'm on the radio going 1013 forthwith. Well, it's alone. just like with Kim. It's just like with Kim Potter. You know, when that uh, when she shot Dante Wright, that was right uh, during the time that that um, uh, the George Floyd trial was going on, and all the police officers had to have been under enormous pressure, and 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 it happened right near where um, the George Floyd. Um, killing happened and so you know of course she after she was 26 years on the force and uh and she mistook she had never shot even her um either weapon before no less killed somebody before um but you know under all that stress of all the mobs in the street and all the hatred towards police and all that um of course you know she's going to it's a, a ripe situation to confuse uh, a weapon 
And I mean, I think she got unbelievably uh, wrong. (laughs) I don't think she should have been found guilty of, and no less of first and second degree. They really threw the book at her. Yeah, unfortunately. And uh, I go there for the grace of God, go I. I mean, I was only on for 10 years, but I never had to be in that sort of a situation. Draw the weapon, yes. But you always knew which was which and where it was. But what surprised me is that she was not trained on the taser, and yet she was carrying it. I'm sorry, before you step mm-hmm. on that weapon, you better know it frontwards, backwards, inside out, and in the dark. Otherwise, you don't carry well, she, it. Well, she had, well, but she had been trained, just not, she missed a couple of things recently. But she had been trained before on, on a taser. It was a new taser, so perhaps that was part of it. But um, it was just. It was just really sad. It is. It is very sad. Um, I, I had a question in my head for you, uh, Julio, and just went out in one side and out the other. <laughs> I got rocks in the middle of well, my head. Well, let me just add something. You know, it's amazing with all that, all the um, violence directed towards police. It is amazing that people are still willing to be police officers altogether at this point. That is absolutely correct, absolutely correct. But um, right now, with the inflation we got here, Julio, it's affecting the cost of living, especially to those that are elderly. Uh, Prices have gone through the roof. Is it going to be starting to displace people from their homes? Are they going to be losing everything with this hyperinflation? It's already started. I mean, the rents have gone up dramatically. Their food costs have gone up dramatically. Gas, utilities has gone up dramatically for them, already displacing them. And unfortunately, I don't see a break this year in that event. I don't see inflation all of a sudden being resolved by the Biden administration. They're going to have the Federal Reserve, you know, raise the interest rates and try to cool down supply and demand. But ultimately, it's not going to impact these people, the elderly and uh and those prices are substantially gone up. Apples, 14%, peanut butter, 8%. All the meats have gone up 12%. I mean, this is just dramatic for them. But rents is one thing, too, and the utilities. So um, it's a bad situation getting worse. That's unfortunate. You know, the funny thing is, is uh, just the day that my husband and I were supposed to sign uh, the, the modification of our um, – mortgage was the day he passed away so (laughs) my mortgage broker goes you know wait six months and we'll try it and hopefully the rates stay down low but it looks like i'm stuck until we finally get a republican uh administration back in office is that is this what you're advising people just to ride it out yeah i think so i mean look the uh federal reserve is going to raise interest rates they've said three to four times this year starting soon um, so the cost to now buy a house and buy a car and transportation, all that is going to go up dramatically. And, you know, from that interest rate perspective, and the prices to adjust will probably take quite some time. And ultimately, I think it's probably good that we wait and uh, hope for a better tomorrow. That. Now, what does this do to people, uh, Dr. Carroll? You know, here they are, that they, they thinking that they got themselves set for their future and all of a sudden finding just about everything on the line. 
whether or not they can afford the next meal or medicine or, good Lord, the price of medicine. Yes, <laughs> the price of medicine is crazy. Um, I know, you know, this country has been so battered, uh, first by COVID, but now by all of these other things. This, this, I mean, Biden's, I mean, he has brought this country to its knees, really, with all of the bad uh, the executive orders and the surrendering in Afghanistan and um, the inflation and just all of it. Um, and, you know, I mean, we don't really have um, much choice other than to try to ride it out except to look for islands. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would like to find a French island <laughs> that I could move to. Um, well, this has a huge uh what this administration has done has had a huge impact on our economy, obviously. But we also have that huge influx at the border of not only just illegal aliens, human trafficking, and drug smuggling. Now, there's enough fentanyl here in the United States that they've brought in through the illegal immigration here to kill every single U.S. citizen. Uh, the impact mm-hmm. on our economy of this flood... I'm going to call it an invasion, Julio. What else would you call it? Oh, that's exactly what it is, and who who knows what else is coming over besides the fentanyl, right, the next 9-11 probably. And ultimately, what a high cost to the taxpayers, right? And that's the justification, right, from the Biden administration of why we have to raise taxes to deal with all these issues that they caused. They cut off the supply day one with the executive orders and created that, you know, inflation from out of the gates. And now we have the inflation being caused from the border crisis. And like you said, hope for a better tomorrow. Well, you know, what what the biggest threat is um, right now, I mean, what people need to to wake up to, I mean, we're we're under so much stress. The COVID was just the beginning of it. But um, depression and anxiety and, and, um, you know, and, of course, yesterday, the uh, January 6th anniversary, um, put enormous pressure on people, and we are more divided than ever. So then it's interesting. That was yesterday, and then today we have the uh, vaccine mandate in, in, at the Supreme Court. And I mean, you know, it's really um, people do need to uh, start doing things to help themselves physically and psychologically to do basic kinds of things, uh, you know, instead of instead of just worrying about the vaccine or no vaccine, just just to, you know, to do to nutrition and sleep and, and laughter and all kinds of things like that. Um, I actually made a, a prescription for America uh, with, with all of these kinds of things. It's an anagram, and each letter stands for something that people can do every day to help make themselves healthier. And you can find it on um, pleasefirefauci.com. Pleasefirefauci.com, <laughs> and then... Yes, and then you look at the top, and it has uh, Prescription for America. So if people looked at that and did these basic things that don't cost any money, they need to, we need to be healthier than ever because, um, well, not just because of COVID, but because of all this stress. You know, you just made me really laugh because I had Peter Navarro on, and I said, Peter, I've got one name for you. I said, Fauci, and I just sat back and let him go. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, these uh, vaccines, uh, Julio, uh, I'm believing 
honestly, that it's one, I'm going to say this, and you're going to call me a conspiracy theory, but it's one huge scam to put money in the pockets of big pharma. I think that's what it, the, the main reason behind them are. Yeah, no question about that. And to do these mandates to my company, every company across the nation here, and force us to make a decision about how we react and interact with our employees and what we force them to do to their own bodies at the profit of these big pharmas is just unfathomable. And you're right, the stress of this hearing going on at you know, the Supreme Court today, whether the Supreme Court will side with Biden or, or not, is a, just a tremendous stress for all of us. And we're all watching. We all don't know what's going to happen. And uh, you're right, we've got to stay healthy through all this, but it's uh, dramatic. Well, this is going to affect over 100 million workers, as I understand with the statistics were being read last night. And that's, I mean, when we have a population of what, about 330 million, that's one out of every American. That's, mm-hmm. that's every single household. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. That's going to be a huge stressor. Do I have a job tomorrow or don't I? Everything hangs yeah. on the balance right here. Right there. Dr. Carroll, yeah. how, do, how, do, well, how do families cope with this? Well, I, um, I really applaud those people who quit their job, um, like firemen and nurses. And, I mean, I, I, you know, of course we need firemen and nurses and police and all of that. But, you know, rather than be, um, have to have the vaccine, they felt strongly enough, and they felt strongly enough for freedom, you know, uh, to have the choice that they quit, a significant number of people. And that they are really... You know, um, we should all be grateful to them for people standing up for our freedoms rather than being sheep and just, uh, you know, of course, of course, it means that they're giving up money, you know, from their job and and, um, the the people who like nurses who study forever to become a nurse and want to be a nurse. But, you know, it's more important to them to stand up for freedom. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And And I would like to applaud the companies that, you know, did not force the vaccine and said we'll just handle this in court well we'll go to court we'll deal with the osha fines and whatever happens mm-hmm. to that so um kudos to them as well mm-hmm. well you also now have uh, governors like desantis saying i'm not enforcing any mandates uh my governor here uh, mcmaster's not enforcing any mandates but the federal government is trying to usurp state power julio i yeah. mean yeah this is this has got to be so unconstitutional. And when I heard some of the arguments last night from the Supreme Court, you really don't know mm-hmm. which way they're going to fall, and they're not doing this constitutionally. I think. Well, I think you're right, but you're right. All eyes are watching today. I mean, including the stock market, including the international mm-hmm. markets, right? So it will have a big impact, and probably one of the biggest impacts we'll have this year will be. You know what they said because you're right. What happens to 100 million employees that ultimately say now we can't go to work, we can't, and now our supply of labor costs, all these things that have been so tough during a pandemic, and to put this additional pressure on a business and the individuals is just too much. Now the question is because you're a business owner, both of you are. The question is is that if these individuals lose their jobs. 
are they eligible for unemployment? Mm. Or, or will they be denied their benefits, unemployment benefits, because they refuse the jab? Uh, Dr. Cal, you take that first, then I want to hear Julia's opinion. Well, um, I mean, that's a good question because, uh, you know, and if the answer is they, they can keep them today, by tomorrow it might be that they can't. They're just trying to use everything. You know, even it's been suggested that people who don't get vaccinated shouldn't, should pay higher prices for um, health insurance. And, I mean, they're just looking at every kind of potential punishment that they can make. I mean, it's not enough to uh, say you can't go into restaurants and so on, inside restaurants um, and whatever else they've done so far. Now it's just uh, they're just trying to go to stronger and stronger punishments. Um, but you know what's interesting? Uh, it's working the opposite way. First of all, people who aren't vaccinated are pretty set in their ways that they are not going to get vaccinated uh, if they haven't by now. But also... Um, it's working the opposite way in the sense that it is making people, whether they're vaccinated or not, want to rebel. It's like a, a parent telling a, a kid, don't put your hands in the cookie jar. And, um, you know, that too many times uh, to say that it's going to cause people to want to rebel. And apparently over, over the holidays, there have been more parties. Um, I was just hearing about a store, a grocery store where, um, you know, there were there were lots of things missing on the um, on their shelves, and um, a friend of mine asked the store manager, "Well, how is this? Well, how are all these different things?" And it wasn't um, it wasn't about the the slowness of the supplies. It was he said, "I've never had as many people in my store over the holidays as these holidays because everybody was having parties." So people are rebelling, and that's what's causing, mm-hmm. that's contributing to to the increase in uh, COVID. And I mean, it's, it's it's this is the wrong way to do it. Julio, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is just the wrong way. I mean. We're seeing that as well here in our community. Thank goodness we have a great governor in Ron DeSantis here in Florida. But ultimately, this is a federal issue. But you're right. I think they can, they're going to go get unemployment. There's no doubt there's going to be massive claims, right? We didn't like the unemployment report today, right? The employment fell way lower than expectations. And you can imagine what happens if they go with the forced mandate. That unemployment issue is going to go up dramatically, which is going to boost inflation, which is going to cause stress on the system, right, because they're going to have the uh, unemployment claims. And uh, I think it's a, a, a snowball that just is going to turn into an avalanche. Now, there's a couple of extra monkey wrenches coming into this. The head of the FDIC, I forgot what her name is, uh, turned in her letter of resignation effective next month. But in her letter of resignation, she felt that one of the reasons why she had to step down is that the climate in the FDIC has changed and has become a hostile takeover. Now, Julio, how is this going to affect our everyday bank accounts and investments if the FDIC goes far left? Well, you know, and they're heading that way in the administration again wants to make banking onerous for all of us, banking, cash apps, all these things, right? Because now they're moving that minimum threshold to 600 for whatever is taxable. 
in any transaction, even if it's personal. And imagine the burden it puts on the personal people and their business owners as well. I mean, this is just dramatic. I think it's already going far left. And again, you know, going from 10,000 transactions to 600, doing that not only at the bank level, ATM level, cash app level, and all the FDIC roles that they're changing to a very socialistic program, uh, another another strain on the system. Well, now they have where the cash apps such as Venmo and Zelle, and I use Zelle for my bill pay, have to report transactions over 600. So just even if I go and pay my monthly bills, I'm going to be under the eyes of the IRS. Just to do, just sitting here at my home computer paying my monthly bills. Now that's freaking me out, Dr. Carroll. I mean, you know, you can imagine maybe going after a business that's skipping their taxes or someone who's trying to put something offshore. Uh, but for the everyday person, an innocent individual suddenly go, oh, crap, if I use this app now to pay my bills monthly, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to be penalized? Is this going to cost me more than what I'm paying in my bills? It's unbelievable. I mean, I guess maybe um, maybe we need to start paying things in smaller <laughs> in smaller uh, amounts. Um, you know, I mean, in other words, uh, a couple of checks or a couple of payments, um, like two payments of three hundred instead of one payment of six hundred, for example. I mean, I don't know if that's going to work. It's just. Uh, it is yes. The government is invading every aspect of our lives more than ever. And I can't, wait to till 2020, I can't wait till 2022 uh, when hopefully uh, more Republicans will get voted in and um, can undo um, all of this mess that Biden has gotten us into. But, of course, just like in the schools, you know, it's so much harder to undo things uh, in, rather than making sure that they don't happen to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've stood in front of a couple of school board meetings and I do not sit quietly, that's for sure. <laughs> when they you're, see a me sitting there going, oh. you're, you're a domestic terrorist. You're a domestic terrorist then. <laughs> no, even my county council, they see me sitting there and the chair of the council, uh, I call him uh, Mr. Pissant. <laughs> His name is actually Passamonte, <laughs> another fellow Bazano. <laughs> and he. he Last time I went before him and I made my public comment, before I even got to speak, he goes, do you have anything new to add? In other no. words, sit down and shut up. That works like a oh, ton God. of bricks with me. <laughs> but, Julio, if, we, if we want to regain our republic and regain our economy, we have to be active and participate publicly, don't we? Oh, it starts... It starts publicly and it starts locally, right? It starts in your own local community, and it starts with educating the people within your community and helping the people get elected that are going to help us at that local level and ultimately at the state level and then at the federal level. But you're right. We have to be active more than ever because, you know, if not, you know, the liberal side is not going to stop being active, right, and, uh, and go after their socialist agenda. So it's a real war out there. Yeah, because... Uh, I still have my tea party, and we've been—I've been running it, you know, since 2009. I, 
actually someone else was running it and I was helping them and then everyone else stepped back and I'm the last woman standing. But we still have active meetings. But what I'm finding, which is really buoying me, Dr. Carroll, is that there are now other groups emulating what the Tea Party originally was, but they may be called Moms for Liberty, Engage the Right. They have other different names, Rock Red, right. but they, they are another form of the Tea Party. Uh, the silent majority is starting to find its voice, aren't they? This is the rebellion we're talking about. Um, you mean that, that more people are joining? Yes. Um, yes. I mean, we saw, for example, in Virginia, um, how much the moms, um, I forgot what they called their group, but, you know, they were obviously very effective. You know, and it's so interesting because um, when when the Republican candidate won in Virginia, I, I mean, I think that the the um, incumbent uh, was and and people in his party were, were just assuming that he was going to win, and and um, it became it was a shock. The the results were a shock, and so it didn't. Since they weren't expecting that, uh, the elections turned out to be honest, you know, because they didn't know that they had to put a fix in. <laughs> well, this again is big business, Julio, with these voting machines and whether or not they're have this program in it or that program. I mean, this, this costs each state a lot of money just to keep this voting equipment up to whatever the latest is. Yeah, and uh, believe me, on their agenda before November is to get these bills passed that are going to help them federalize the elections, like we said, and uh, ultimately put us in such a worse situation. So we got to hold the ship here. For a few more months, right? Get to November, we'll change the house. Then there's no doubt about that, right? And then ultimately, get these laws fixed at a state level and then at a federal level. Well, that's that's the important thing, you know, because I do get in contact with my state representative and my state senator. I I have them on speed dial, uh, so that uh-huh. I'm always constantly. But this is what the average American now has to do: learn who your representatives are, whether it's from yes. the dog catcher all the way up to your senator in in the Congress. Um, you have to know who is representing you. Know your school board officials. You know, I have him. I text him. It's like, hey, listen, is this and that going on? Uh, when someone sent me a message saying that we were being taught CRT in our schools here, first thing I did, I got on with him and I said, David, tell me if any of these individuals who claim that they're teaching CRT are part of our schools. And fortunately, he found out it was all phony. But, you know, you have to, the average person has to be on top of it. And, Julia, I found that, you know, even if you make a phone call or you send an email, they log who it is and what the, the, um, the issue is that they're contacting about. So the more you call, the more they're familiar with you, and the more the issues are brought before the representative for action to be taken on. That's important, right? Oh, you're absolutely right. They log all that. They pay attention. And ultimately, they want to be reelected, right? And they want to make sure that they have the support of their communities. And so every voice matters. And as we, you dial in, as I dial in, as we get together as groups and dial in, I think that's very important. 
And having that dialogue, whether it's at the local level, you know, myself, always in the White House, always in Congress, lobbying for good tax law for small businesses and individuals, they do listen. Ultimately, you can have a say, and that say is meaningful. Well, Dr. Carroll, when we were, we're going through, every state is going through redistricting. And this is something uh, I think people need to uh, pay a lot of attention to, because if you get your yes. district out and your representative changes, uh, everything that you're accustomed to is different. Now, we're fighting to keep our county within the district that we've always been in. And uh, my former Representative Joe Beercan Cunningham, uh, who has now <laughs> lost his race to Nancy Mays, um, he was trying to redistrict us into another district, and that way a Democrat could take the seat that Nancy Mays has. Uh, we've been fighting him on that. So far, he had one person uh, testify on his behalf, and there was something like that 60 of us that flooded the committee with emails and phone calls. Uh, but this is, this is what is important. We have to form a sense of community when it comes to actions like this, don't we? And that, that's good for mental health, too, to know that there's allies at your side. Yes. Um, I mean, I think what you said about making, you know, people don't, we, we need to make that more accessible, the names of the representatives, you know, at the state level and in Congress and all that, uh, because a lot of people feel sort of lost about not knowing how to contact them. Um, I think it would be very helpful to uh, to make sure that people had, that it was like sent out in an email who all the people were um, for each state. But I know whenever there's redistricting, <laughs> you have to be very suspicious because it's somebody, whoever wants to redistrict obviously wants to do it so it's favorable for them and their party. Yeah, because uh, Beer Can Joe wanted to get back into Congress, I guess, to car- carry another six-pack onto the floor. <laughs> we, we're not letting him. We are not letting him do that. But, you know, there's... there's we're in a state in our society where, Julio, we're facing attacks from the left for, you know, the transgender fad, uh, where it's like less than 1% of our society was actually transgender, but they want to make everyone. Uh, we have attacks on our economy uh, by the government, uh, the, not only just the Biden administration, but also by our state and local governments attempting to increase our taxes. Uh, how are you advising people to look in the outlook for this year? How are you telling them to prepare uh, so that hopefully we can weather the storm? What is your outlook for 2022? Well, the Biden administration is moving quickly to increase taxes. And then, you know, they're saying that they need to raise taxes, right, to support all these programs these socialistic programs, they want that revenue to commit people to being reliant on the government. They have that as the number one priority to get done. They're going to raise taxes to do it. They raise the taxes under the message that we have inflation, we have all these things to pay for because of COVID, but really it's to redistribute the wealth, get people dependent on the government like they did you know, in the last year, and ultimately 
and get that socialistic program in place, keep it in the schools with the education and all the money they wanted to pass in those bills. But, look, if I'm advising people on what to do, taxes are going to go up. You know, one thing that my clients are doing, like you discussed, is they're moving out of highest tax states like New York and California and coming to Texas and Florida. That's one thing to get it down. But then ultimately, look, the tax code is very sophisticated. There's tax credits in there for all small businesses. And a good thing to do is just, you know, if you're a small business owner or an individual, just Google um, deductions that you can look for and apply because, like, there's so many deductions this year, last year, for staying home, working from COVID. So I think all those things will help. Well, I wish I had something like that going on. I no longer have a business, so I can't apply for any of that. And the worst part is is that my mom sold her house, but the house was actually in my name. She had it transferred after my dad passed away. So now I've got this huge amount of money I've got to claim on an income check, and I'm trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do. I'm going to get wallet. I know it. I just know it. Thank you, Joe Biden. Go ahead, I have Curtis. a question, Annie. Go ahead. For all the damage that is being done by this current administration, should the Republicans regain control over both houses and then two years later Trump gets back in, What's the chances of us reversing a lot of this stuff? And the question is to both of y'all. Who wants well, to go first? Well, I mean, I, I would hope that... Um, Ladies first. I mean, as quickly as, as Biden made these things happen, I would hope that maybe not as quickly, but certainly eventually that they can be reversed. Um even maybe going back into Afghanistan. Not that anybody wants to see mm-hmm. that, but Afghanistan is definitely a, a, a hotbed and is falling apart and is asking Biden for money. I mean, our money is going all over the place, not just, uh, you know, not to Americans, but, you know, all over um, for all these different different projects. Yeah, I would, you know, add to that, like, you know, President Trump got into office he would do a massive amount of executive orders immediately, especially on the energy right. side. And he would ultimately, too, I think quickly, you know, it depends. Does he have both sides of the House? Does he have the Senate and does he have the House? Because if he does, then he can quickly get laws passed as well. Um, so, But I, I think if it was President Trump, it would be immediate. Well, I, I'm always hoping that it will be Trump. Uh, that comes back in and just undoes, undoes, boy, am I teething backwards today? Undoes all the stuff that uh, Biden has been doing. But, uh, Carol, when you when you watch President Biden speak publicly, what is the feeling you're getting with from him? Because, you know, even before he was elected, I looked at my mom, God bless her, she's 89, she's got all her marbles, and I said, that looks like elder abuse to me. I mean, what do you see when yes, you see yes. Joe, Joe Biden? Well, I have been talking for ever since before the election about how Joe Biden has encroaching dementia. That's what I call it. And it has been encroaching increasingly since then. And uh, everybody knows it. You know, you, can't, you don't have to be a psychiatrist to see that um, uh, he has problems of dementia, that he has memory problems, that he has 
um, irritability, you know, um, mood swings, um, just a whole bunch of, and the, the biggest thing is that he's not able to think uh, with analytical thinking, abstract thinking. So in other words, he can't do the kind of thinking that um, chess players do where you not only think about what's best for your move, but what's the other person going to do, and then what are you going to do, and then what? He can't do that. So when it's a big picture, something like Afghanistan or, or any other big picture, um, he can't really see all the parts to it. Like he can't see what's the bad things that are going to happen if you do this. So, um, so I, I mean, why he hasn't been already thrown out on the 25th Amendment, I don't know. Um, or, you know, I know there are some calls for him to retire. There's a petition. I'm sure there's more than one petition. But uh, he's not going to retire. And, yes, in terms of elder abuse, um, I don't know how his wife can stand by. Obviously, she likes being first lady better than she loves Jill, Jill, better than she loves Joe Biden, because otherwise she could not put him out there um, in to be embarrassed, to be uh, to ruin the country, and so on. Um, so you know, it's that's that is elder abuse, yes. And what do you, what do you see when you see Joe Biden uh, and you're talking to your clients? You know, what do you, what do you say to them, Julio? Well, you know, basically we share with them that his agenda is really about making it much more difficult for our people that work and have companies because not only is he raising the taxes, he's increased the regulation dramatically. Now he's putting this mandated vaccine on all of us. And, you know, so all these pressures for small businesses and still trying to shut down our small businesses across the country – and we just got to hold strong. We got to have faith. Listen, I was at a Trump rally last night here in West Palm Beach. The president drove by, and you know it was great. It was so many wonderful people coming together, feeling confident, feeling that you know this is going to change. And uh, so we got to. And you're right. We got to start with the local communications with our politicians. But uh, you know, if anything, last night gave me hope. It was going to that rally and seeing so many great people still. So supportive of President Trump. See, you say West Palm Beach, and I keep on picturing my husband and I driving down I-95, and we knew when we were hitting Palm Beach. It's like the traffic Mm -hmm. just changed dramatically. (laughs) But I'm hoping that was years ago. I'm hoping it's better now. But, uh, you know, there's so much more to talk about and so much more to go into because, you know, this is like the craziest I've ever seen our nation in. And um, I did not vote for Jimmy Carter, uh, but I thought it was bad under Carter. And then when Obama came in, I thought it was bad, worse than under Carter. But now we see Joe Biden. Can we get any worse than this? What happens if, if he does step down or he passes away in office? We're stuck with then Kamala Harris, Julio. Is that going to be any better? Won't be any better. No, I mean, really. The only thing that'll be better is come November when we take at least the House and Senate back, and then ultimately it becomes, you know, something where nothing really can happen for the next two years. And uh, so at least we'll squelch any further, you know, harm and then, you know, wait for uh, 2024. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Carroll, what do you see in your patients when they come 
to you with the stress between vaccine and mask mandates, uh, looming unemployment, higher costs. Do you see more of, because uh, we know society is now having more drug addiction and alcohol abuse. What are you seeing in your clients? Well, I especially see, yes, I've been still seeing my patients through uh, Zoom. And um, I especially see the damage in the children, Um, kids who were very smart and very uh, interested in school and got good grades and all of that. They are just falling by the wayside. Um, They are, they've lost interest in school. Um, They don't really participate. A lot of them uh, don't, you know, don't wake up in time. They just sleep in. They don't uh, go to Zoom for their classes. Um, of course, it all depends upon whether you're in a class where the teacher is seeing who's there, you know, whether everybody's picture is on or not. But they're just, and even when they do go to the Zoom classes, you know, a lot of them are on their cell phone texting with their friends. I mean, they have just lost all interest in school. They've lost the year or two years of education, uh, what they were supposed to be learning. Um, they are depressed. They can't see beyond that there is going to be uh, light at the end of the tunnel because they haven't had enough years of experiencing uh, bad things, you know, um, overwhelming kinds of things where there was light. Like, for example, adults having gone through various wars and so on or um, or other, uh, you know, major issues. Um, they We see that, they, you know, it's not necessarily going to always be like this. But kids don't have that ability to appreciate that or to to feel confident in that. And they are just, you know, they're getting involved in alcohol and drugs and and just um, suicide, of course, and um, just, you know, dropping out, (laughs) literally dropping out. Well, this is going to have an impact on our future economy because this is our future that's coming up here, Julio. Do we will we have a good economy, say in ten, fifteen years? Yeah, well, it, it depends if the uh, the Democrats win their, you know, the eventuality of socialism. Then obviously not. You know, do we come back in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four and save the economy, save the country? It's a real battle right now. And uh, that battle's being fought, and uh, that, you know, 2022 will tell us a lot. Well, Julio, where can people find you? Yeah, um, at Tax Reform Expert and uh, engineeredtaxservices.com. All right, and do you have a website of your own called, with your name, right, Julio Gonzalez? Oh, yeah, juliogonzalez.com as well. Okay, I've got it linked up on the show page. And uh, Dr. Carroll, where can people find you? Well, I have a few different websites, um, terroristtherapist.com and expertwitnessforensicpsychiatrist.com. And don't you have a drcarroll.com? And I have a Dr. Carroll with Carroll with an E, <laughs> C-A-R-O-L-E.com, yes. Okay, I've got the links up to the terrorist therapist and to your podcast also, Dr. Carol's Couch. Uh, Dr. Carol Lieberman, thank you so much, and God bless you for the hard work you're doing. Well, thank you. All right, and Julio, you know you're always welcome with us. 
Thank you so much. And again, God bless you for the work you're doing and standing out there for the Republic. Julio Gonzalez. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Okay. We've got our next victim up in, if my computer will behave. Come on. Come on. Here we go. There we go. There we go. I want to welcome back onto the show Mark Tapscott. Uh, he was the founder of Hill Faith, and he's also the Washington, D.C. correspondent with the Epoch Times, or Epic Times, depending upon how you want to say it. Good afternoon, Mark, and welcome back. How was your holiday? Well, my holiday was great. How about you all? Uh, mine was nice and quiet. I sent mom down to... Mom down to visit my sister, and I had a nice, quiet afternoon. <laughs> That's good. Curtis, how about you? Oh, it was just, it was, how can I say it? It was nice. Uh, my birthday was New Year's Day. Um, unfortunately, the next day, I found out that my oldest brother died on my birthday that night. So it's kind of mixed. But overall, I had a good, good weekend, good holiday. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, yeah, these things happen. What what shall we talk about today, guys? Oh man, you know everyone's still (laughs) talking about January sixth, and you know there's there's reports coming out now uh, about exactly what was going on on January sixth, and looking like uh, mainstream media just quite did not quite get it right, did they? Well, that's an understatement. Um, there has been one one report already from the um, uh, Capitol, um, excuse me, the Capitol Hill Police uh, Inspector General. That came out, I think, two weeks ago, and it indicated uh, numerous problems with Capitol Hill Police's uh, lack of preparation, lack of training, lack of having the proper equipment to deal with the kind of situation that developed. Um, and that all is the direct responsibility of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, because she is the top official uh, on Congress, in Congress, and all of the uh, administrative functions, the people who uh, do those, including the police, including the day-to-day management, everything, they all report to her. So the the real unwritten story here so far is uh, what did Nancy Pelosi decide and when did she decide it uh, and how did that affect the ability of the Capitol Hill Police to deal with a situation that got out of hand very quickly? Yeah, because the number of officers that were deployed was just a small handful considering how large that crowd was. Now, there's also questions about, you know, you watch the crowd leave um, where Trump was speaking, and you see children, you see grandparents, you don't see anyone wearing gas masks or carrying weapons in their hands. But somehow or other, they were already there at the Capitol almost an hour before Trump finished his speech. And this is very suspicious, isn't it? There there were people, uh, I believe the first... Um, penetration of the Capitol, and I think it was through broken windows, uh, Trump was still speaking when it happened. And, um, you know, I, I covered, I was there on January 6th. I saw the crowd. It was 99% of them were, you know, regular, everyday 
people worried about what was going on in our country, and they were there to make their voices heard. And then you have the 1%, some number of whom probably were FBI agents uh, undercover, um, who came to cause trouble, and they succeeded. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was watching Newsmax uh, yesterday, uh, one of the, the commentators was going down a list of incidents that have happened over our nation's history where FBI were actually instigators within, you know, whatever was going on. You have the attempt of, what was it, a kidnapping of Doug, uh, Governor Whitmer, and they went down this whole big list, uh, Ruby Ridge and some other stuff. And I was surprised. In 1969, a Democratic uh, riot had something like over a thousand FBI agents that were infiltrators. So it, it, it is no small wonder that there are now reports that there were possible FBI infiltrators that were instigating the riot. Yeah, I, I would not be at all surprised by that. Um, one of the one of the ironies of this is in 1963, I believe. Uh, about, I, I believe I have read. I may be um, slightly off here, but at least half the so-called members of the Ku Klux Klan were FBI infiltrators. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there there is there is a long history of the FBI infiltrating um, groups like that. They they did the Students for a Democratic Society, those campus radicals in the '60s. Um, and that was a good thing, but but when you have, as apparently was the case with the uh, Whitmer kidnapping, where the ringleaders of the plot are FBI undercover guys, something is wrong. That's not the way the FBI is supposed to work. And, um, you know, I suspect that sooner or later we're going to learn um, the truth about what what people like Ray Epps were doing um, on January 6th, why were they directing people, encouraging people to um, go into the Capitol? Um, there are many, 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 many facts that have yet to be discovered. There are. There are. Now, what I found interesting while all this was going, uh, no one has ever mentioned, and I finally found it in your paper, um, that Congress passed a bill to give Capitol Police authority to request National Guard assistance. Now, this was passed just this past December, but no one's talking about it. What's going on well, here? That, that, yeah, that, that was, that's one of the few things that have actually been done since January 6th last year to, um, um, to remove bureaucratic obstacles that, that typically exist in Washington, D.C. But from what I have seen uh, and what we have reported in terms of uh, President Trump, two days before January 6th, offered to have 10 to 20,000 National Guard groups standing at the ready to be deployed if requested by who? House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the mayor of uh, the District of Columbia, uh, Muriel Bowser. So. Anybody who suggests that Trump instigated this, if he had, if he, if he knew he was instigating something like that, why on earth would he have 
an offer like that on the table. If you need 20,000 National Guard groups, they're yours. Um, There are just so many things about what Nancy Pelosi did or did not do in the several days leading up to January 6th and then especially on the morning of when it became very clear that uh, things were getting out of hand. There are so many questions that sooner or later she's going to have to go under oath and, and answer. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, as the video is starting to surface, more and more video is starting to surface about what was going on in and outside. And before the crowd even got to the Capitol, you saw some of the officers removing the signs about do not trespass, you know, removing those signs and the um, barriers to allow the crowd through. And this is now just starting to come to light. Now, I said, you know, I've, I've handled, I've been sent to a lot of riots. I know how the mobilization goes. And I did not see any sort of tactics like that with the Capitol Police at all. And Well, I, yeah, I think you're right about that, Ann. And, and it's, it's, frankly, it's my opinion um, that, the, the main reason why we see videos of Capitol Hill police officers uh, taking down the barriers, and then we see videos of in other locations around the Capitol of Capitol Hill police um, battling people at barriers, is there there was so much uh, confusion within the Capitol Hill police leadership structure about what do we do. How do, how, do, how do we deal with this? And I think, I think it's probably likely that, um, frankly, conflicting orders were being issued. And that's why you see, um, you know, some officers letting people through and other officers beating on people with batons. Mm, yeah, I, when I watched that whole thing and I says, wait a minute, this, this is not a defensive tactic. I, I, they're not prepared for a massive crowd. And the yeah. number of Capitol Police they dispatched to hold off this massive crowd was wholly inadequate. I mean, we yeah, would, when we knew it something was. was going down, whole busloads of us would be sent to whatever was going on. And that was yeah. a huge deterrent, which kept a lot of things nice and calm. But I did not see busloads of officers or any, any backup. Uh, being transported into the Capitol at all. And that means that, hey, they just opened the doors. So now what are we going to do now with these people that have been behind bars, some of them for more than a year? Where is their constitutional right? Constitutional right to a speedy trial. Uh, The Constitution is being violated left and right with these people. Cruel and inhumane treatment. And no one is out there talking about this. Well, there, there have been some Republican members, in, especially in the House, that have talked about it. Uh, Congressman Louie Gilmert from Texas, for example. Um, yep. And Matt, Matt, Matt Gates, Gates, I think, from, from Florida. Yeah. Um, Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene from, yep. from Georgia. Uh, th- there are people talking about it, but the most amazing thing to me about the people who have been arrested – uh, and have been held is you hold people in um, 
those kinds of circumstances, high security, no visitors, no contact with the public, um, those no medical. are the kinds of conditions that you, you – no medical. Those are the kind of conditions that you hold terrorists in. But if these guys are all a bunch of terrorists, how come none of them have been charged with insurrection? Um, the vast majority of the charges that have been registered have been um, registered against these defendants are misdemeanors, or they are for for things like um, uh, delaying an official proceeding. You know, I mean, that's those are the kinds of things you shouldn't be doing, but that's not insurrection. So you know, now, it, it doesn't add up here. No, it doesn't. But now the the question that, you know, was on the mind of everyone yesterday with the one year anniversary of this event, was this planned to disrupt Congress and prevent Republicans from challenging the votes? That was that was a huge question raised. That did they do this deliberately just to keep the Republicans from raising any questions and bringing debate to the floor? That's a, that, that is an interesting question, and, and I had a conversation earlier today with um, some folks um, where it was pointed out that going into the session in the morning, um, it appeared that, if you'll recall, Senators Josh Hawley and uh, Ted Cruz were the leaders of the um, senators who were questioning the results, and they were going to present their case. And I, I had the sense that morning that, that they actually had some momentum. Um, people were beginning to listen to them and, and um, had an expectation that, you know, hey, they may really say something here today that's uh, worth listening to. And, of course, they never got the opportunity to do that because of the, uh, because of the riot. So, you know, whether it was uh, calculated or uh, simply uh, – trying to discredit the Trump uh, supporters, uh, the bottom line on it is is the challenge was never presented. So, you know, Congress was not able to fulfill their duties a la Nancy Pelosi, right? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Well, they weren't, they you know. weren't, they weren't able to, to, to do their duties to the degree that the uh, seriousness of the allegations required. Now, there's there's going to be a lot more coming out on this one. And once we take back the House in on 2022, this November, um, I hope massive investigations will be opened up and expose everything that happened on that day or leading up to that day. But it also brings her out that Nancy Pelosi has decided she's not going to run for speaker again. This is her last term. Oh, wow. Aren't we thrilled? Well... I, you know, I think she is, what, 81, 82 years old. She's probably tired, um, and, and she can read the, the writing on the wall. If the elections were held today, I suspect that uh, the Republicans would pick up 65, 70 seats. <clears throat> Significant thing about that in regard to January 6th is it's um, not unreasonable to expect that Jim Jordan from Ohio uh, who is a real um, – he is going to get to the bottom of this stuff. He will be the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, 
and the House Administration Committee, which has jurisdiction over all of these administrative offices that answer to the, to the Speaker, uh, it's very likely that uh, Congressman Rodney Davis from Illinois will be the chairman. And he is like Jordan. He is determined to get to the bottom of it. Um, and I, I think the year 2023 is going to be a very, very difficult year uh, for Nancy Pelosi and some other folks. Well, that's if she runs for re-election. Didn't she just recently buy a nice... Whether, <laughs> no, whether she runs for re-election or not, the investigation points to her and they subpoena her, she will have to come. Well, either it should be either in Florida or California, and I have a funny feeling it should be down in Florida. Because <laughs> didn't yeah. she just buy herself <laughs> a got, nice big house there? Holy cow. Go I ahead, Curtis. So. I, I got so. a question. Now... Say we regain the House and the Senate, and I mean, do you think we, our Republican leaders, will have the gonads to go after her? That's a great question, Curtis. And I, I know thing. that there are there are Republicans in both the Senate and the House that I have no <laughs> doubt they will do that. Um, but there are also other Republicans that um, would be very difficult to get, to get them to. to you know, support the effort. But I, I think given all the stuff that has been said, all the outrageous lies that have been told about Republicans by Nancy Pelosi and, um, and her crew, yeah, her whole crew, I think they are going to be pretty united to, uh, okay, guys, we're going to get all the facts out on the table and let the facts go where they may. I hope well, so, that's because good. that's why so many people just get fed up in our yeah. party. And I'm talking about the grassroots people with our leadership, yeah. because they, you know, they don't follow through. They don't follow through. Oh. They talk a good talk, but they don't walk it. <laughs> they don't walk the walk. Oh, that's, yep. that's, that's, that's the tough part. Well, I was lectured, and I was told not to keep you very long, because you've got a deadline that you've got to meet. So, Mark, people can find you at theepictimes.com. You're the chief Washington, D.C. correspondent, and also you're the founder of a wonderful group, Faith Hill. And that's how you and I got to know each other all those years ago. So, Absolutely. God bless. And, and I'm looking so, forward to doing this again, Ann. Oh, you know, she, she's getting the schedule together for me. So, you know, we're going to, just like before, <laughs> like clockwork. We'll do it. Listen, it's great talking to you guys. All right. Take care, Mark. Always. God Bye-bye. bless for the hard work you do. Okay. Mark Tapscott, check him out over at uh, the epictimes.com. That's E-P-O-C-H, epictimes.com. Um, we've got a few minutes before Dr. Lee Edwards joins us, Curtis. So I'm trying to see what else I pulled aside at my magic little computer. I mean, this thing about Amazon and China, I always knew that Amazon was in bed with China. But I'm starting to say before, guys, when you go on to Amazon, look for where your product is coming from. And that's important because a lot of stuff, believe it or not, even though you check it out, when you turn it over on the back, you'll still see made in China. I, I bought something over at Wally World. Now, this is, this is the trick. This is the challenge. I want someone to be able to buy something at Wally World that was actually made in America. That's going to be a hard task. You may find an item or two. But, you know, it's going to be a challenge. So fact is, 
the Epic Times, not the Epic Times, uh, Amazon is definitely in bed with China. Now, um, here, Nancy Pelosi, we were talking about her. Um, it looks like some of the Democrats are starting to get on her case, which is why she's deciding she's not going to be speaker anymore. And she's been doing some hanky-panky with the stock market. Gee, you wonder, you think that she's, she's been doing that? Um, What's she been up to? All right. This is Nancy Pelosi once again is trying her luck in the stock market, this time with millions in call options in Google, Roblox, and Disney. This is from journalist Glenn Greenwald. He posted this up on Twitter. And... Uh, He's saying it's hard to bet against one of the richest politicians in the world, especially given her stock success. She has a really, really successful stock market track record. Why? Because what she does, if we were to do it, would be called insider trading and we would be behind bars. She knows what legislation's going on. She knows what's going on everywhere before it even hits the floor. And that's the best time for her to use that inside information to nail the stock market. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she said about members of Congress and investments, believe this, this is coming out of uh, the bartender's mouth. She goes, there is no reason members of Congress should hold and trade individual stock when we write majority policy and have access to sensitive information. There are many ways members can invest without creating actual or appeared conflict of interest like thrift saving plans or index funds. Believe it or not, this came out of the mouth of the dingbat AOC. And this is what this this should be written into law to prevent members of Congress from profiting from the, getting elected. That's not the reason why they've been elected to Congress. That's not why they're in the Senate, and that's not why they're in the House. Not to fill their own pockets. They're that's there true. to do the will of we the people. And it's about time we, the people, demand legislation that says, I'm sorry, wait, 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 wait. If you got stocks, you either put them in some sort of a blind fund that just leave it alone. You can't touch it. You can't do anything with it. And you cannot do additional trading while you're a member of the Senate or the House. That should be written law. In reference to AOC, even though a broken clock is right twice a day. (laughs) <laughs> so she got that one right. <laughs> mhm. Mhm. Now talking about money. Uh this was again in the Epic Times from Jeffrey Tucker. It turns out that Chucky Schumer, where people know the Yiddish word oh, I'd like Chuck. to use. Yeah. Yeah. It starts with S C H M. Um <laughs> Schumer uh, is on this anti-filibuster drive. He's trying to get rid of the filibuster so they can pass their bills before Republicans take back the House and the Senate. So he's using dark money, a dark money pop-up, it's called, um, according to Mm. a political nonprofit expert. Uh, The group, the front of the group is called the 1630 Fund. And it's part of a $1.7 billion left-wing dark money pop-up empire run by the shadowy consulting firm 
Arabella Advisors, and this is according to Capital Research Center, uh, the senior investigative researcher, Hayden Ludwig. And he said, we call these pop-ups because the websites that pop into existence run attack ads and disappear in an instant, almost never revealing the connection to Arabella or its nonprofits. Wow. So he's using this dark money to try to kill the filibuster. Wow. Well, this I would again think that our illegal. side knows this and will try to um, prevent that in some, some way, form, or fashion. I mean, they can't forever sit on their thumbs and let the Democrats do these things. It's like the election's coming up. We have to make sure that the integrity is going to be in place before the election instead of being, um, you know, after-the-fact type, you know, legislatures that have to become proactive. Well, the filibuster requires that the senator has a cloture rule, a cloture I cannot talk for the life of me today. They have a rule that requires 60 votes to end a debate and vote on a proposal. Um, If Senate Republicans block consideration for two election reform packages that are top priorities, progressive or left, top priorities of the Democrats, um, these are the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act, which would severely limit or eliminate entirely the use of photo IDs related to ballot security measures and require that all proposed changes to state election laws have prior Department of Justice approval, which means from here on we will never, ever, ever have free and fair elections if these two bills pass. Now, he wants to kill the Philip, bring these up for a vote on January 17th, but in order for him to get him up for vote, he's got to kill the filibuster. So this is a big thing. And this we should is, be ready this, for it. This is pivotal because if these two bills pass, even though they're unconstitutional, it will forever kill the republic. Forever kill the republic. And we will sink into socialism and eventually communism. So these things have got, I mean, we've got to find out how the heck to stop this. And I'm hoping the Republicans are uh, are on this, hopefully. Yeah. Now, there's seven, there's, there's a coalition called Fix Our Senate, which is also part of this dark money that is being fed into Schumer's attempt to kill the filibuster. And uh, the 70 organizations, and this is all up on the Epic Times, so take a look at the article. It's uh, titled, Big Left-Wing Dark Money Groups Fund Schumer's Secretive Anti-Filibuster Alley. And it's by Jeffrey A. Tucker. Take a look at it. It is scary. It is scary. And I do believe our last victim is in the house. Let's see if it is Dr. Lee Edwards of Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, sir. No, Annie, this is John Doe. How are you today? John Doe? That's that's a good name, right? Yes, you have a question or comment? Well, actually, I was wanting to comment and following up on what the previous gentleman was speaking about with the 
January 6th anniversary information. It's sad to say, but all of this stuff is being discussed from the perspective to, to distract us from the reality that Congress destroys your and my pub, you know, private property every day, and that's called extrinsic fraud. When they pass laws, rules, process, and procedures, and then deny you and I our due process rights of good faith bargaining, good faith negotiating, mutuality agreement, freedom of contract, freedom of association, then Article 1, Section 9 and 10 of the United States Constitution, where it says no title of nobility will be granted at the federal level or the state level, they just violated. Article 4, Section 2 of the United States Constitution states, citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. So they violated that, because otherwise you and I would get the same due process of good faith bargaining, good faith negotiating, and the First Amendment to the United States uh, Bill of Rights Constitution says that Congress shall make no law abridging the right of the people to petition the government for redress of grievance. Why is that? Because the spirit, hope, and promise of the Declaration of Independence states that every the jure, lawful United States citizen is an equitable, self-governing, free person. So you get remedy. And if they deny you remedy when you petition for your redress, they've made you a second and third class citizen. So all of our fellow Americans who have contacted their congressmen and wrote emails or letters or tried to talk to them at a town hall, and they would not get redress, and if they tried to get a remonstrance, um, you know, floor's opportunity to confront all of our congressmen and stuff about the grievances in order to correct the problems with our government. They left the January 6th people to march and left them no other opportunity to get remedy. So, therefore, they have contributed negligence to give these people who are sitting in jail the affirmative defense of contributory negligence, and none of the right. lawyers, none of our congressmen and senators, whether it be um, Ms. Taylor Green or, or Mr. Gates, are talking about that. That's an impartial jury. These people right, were John, considered John, victims. John, I've got to cut you short here because I do have my next guest in on the line. Thank you for listening in. Okay, uh, let's bring on our next guest, which is Dr. Lee Edwards of the Heritage Foundation. Good afternoon, Dr. Lee. How are you today? Thank you so much, Miss Annie. Good to be with you. Oh, it's always fun to have you. You know, um, when I was do, doing my um, notes for today, uh, I was thinking back to the last time you were here on the show, and I was so tempted to take you up on your offer to join Heritage with you. But I do make donations, <laughs> monthly donations. You do get my monthly donations. Uh, it is it is a pleasure always to talk to you, and sometimes reading some of your stuff, it's a blast from the past, but I got into the article you wrote about where the Iron Curtain begins, and it brought back the memory of a gentleman I used to work with. He was a detective in NYPD, and he actually, his friends helped build a ramp, and on a motorcycle, he jumped the wall when it was wow. only just barbed wire. Mm-hmm. Right, right. He jumped the wall from the east to the west when it was barbed wire, 
And he made it out safe and sound, and he ended up joining the U.S. Army and then became a, a detective in NYPD. And whenever he hears that story, I'm like, I'm going, oh, my God, what guts, what courage they had to defy <clears throat> the authorities back then. Well, they certainly did, and they used all cuts. They used gliders. Uh, they used people would jam them for them, would jam themselves into a Volkswagen bug and sneak over that way. This is all early on before they re- reinforced it with uh, concrete and watchtowers and patrolling dogs and people hauling around machine guns and shooting down people. So the courage of those of those East Germans and East Berliners is extraordinary. It is. It is. And what scares me is the way that we're starting to head back down that road. And when you look at what is happening in our government today, it really scares the heck out of me. And I'm praying that we start to take back our republic on the November election day this year. Well, I think it's a very important date. You're absolutely right, Annie. And, of course, what was going on at the Supreme Court today as well on this mandatory vaccine uh, business is, I mean, there, there are many tests of where we are going to be going in this country uh, and in our future going on right now. and None more important than what's going on before the Supreme Court and then leading up to, as you say, the elections this fall. You know, I was listening to snippets from some of the arguments coming from, like, Justice Roberts and uh, Justice Thomas, but I wasn't hearing them challenging the constitutionality of it. I'm hearing them, you know, question, well, is this pandemic so bad that we have to do this? And that is what's scaring me the most. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it seemed to be more utilitarian arguments than constitutional ones. And I think right now what we need is somebody to stand up for the for the Constitution. Now, uh, fortunately, I, I have great, great faith, as I'm sure you do, in, in Justice Thomas, uh, he's about as solid as you can get. So I, I'm, I mean, I'm hopeful that he will carry the day when talking about the Constitution. Well, I, at this point, he is the sharpest knife in the drawer. There's no other way to put yep, it, is he? Yep. Thirty years that he's been there now, and uh, as you recall, he years ago he didn't ask questions so much, but he's very much taken much more of a leadership role asking pointed questions now, uh, writing learned opinions. So those people who were skeptical about him and his background have been proven so wrong by his ability to grasp the most important questions and I think come up with the right answers. Yeah, I mean, I I just enjoy reading what he writes. Uh, It is so not only just to the point, but eloquent in making his arguments. Uh, but as we're talking about our, our descent, our society's descent into socialism, uh, we're seeing this uh, happening in Hong Kong right now. It was just two years ago that you had the Hong Kong rising for freedom, and bit by bit, communist China has just worn them down. But these kids that live in Hong Kong now have never known communism. They don't know what they're going to be descending into, do they? No, they certainly do not, no, uh, even though they live right next door to, to mainland China, which, of course, is, is communist and, 
is a totalitarian society. Those people who call it authoritarian don't, I think, are overlooking so much of what China is doing. And right there in Hong Kong, where they promise certain rights, certain abilities to be able to vote and to speak and to collect and to congregate, and those one by one, those rights are being taken away. Uh, and it's very clear that uh, Mr. Mr. Xi, President Xi of China, Communist China, does not want to brook any kind of the least amount of uh, dissidence, the least amount of uh, challenge to his rule. Uh, it's th- this is uh, something which is not only bad for the news for the for the Chinese people, but for everybody. In this, uh, in the in the globe, around the country, around the world. Well, now Hong Kong has always been known as the banking center of Asia, and with Chinese communism now controlling that, they actually will then gain control of the world economy, won't they? Yes, that's certainly one of the things that they're trying to do. They, China, really has under under President Xi, really have made up their minds that they're going to be not just a uh, an important uh, nation in Southeast Asia, but they're looking for global influence, global dominance, and that's a direct challenge to uh, to us, to Western Europe, and everybody else in the free world. Uh, and it's it's very very concerning. Well, I can't think of a single country that you can name that China has not had influence over in the world, and. If people were to look at the massive influence they have here in the United States alone, they would be absolutely frightened. Well, they certainly would be. I mean, for example, with the Confucius Institutes, they're about were up until a few years ago about 100 of them at various uh, prominent universities and colleges here in America, such as Columbia, such as Stanford, uh, two of, of our you know premier colleges. And allegedly, these were just sort of social clubs in which you learn a little bit about Chinese culture and how to do a dragon dance <laughs> and uh, how to make chop suey. Uh, but in point of fact, they were uh, they were really establishing an ability to reach out to influence the attitudes of students about uh, about China. It, to make sure to talk about how how democratic it was, and secondly, to use it as beachheads for espionage. Uh, we now know that, uh, for example, the the amount of spying by Chinese people uh, in trying to steal our most important uh, industrial and commercial secrets is beyond what anybody knew. As a matter of fact, it got so bad, Annie, that they shut down. Uh, we did. We shut down the Houston Council General uh, because of the, all of the espionage which was going on in Houston. Wow. <laughs> wow. You know, the influence in boardrooms by the Chinese, the influence on elected officials by the Chinese, the influence of even into local governments like my local county council by the Chinese. It's not obvious unless you actually go and look for it. Um, They approached my county council one time with an idea, and thankfully some of us pounced on it and prevented it. But 
we don't they are so insidious within our government, our mm-hmm. businesses, our education. They're they really, are so uh, they really are. And this whole thing, as you say, they're, what they're doing is this so-called, you know, sister city system they have where they, they say, yep. well, we're just going to, you know, link up with Columbia, South Carolina or, or Charlotte or whatever it might be, uh, Houston. Uh, and this is just the, the way they have of establishing themselves and then beginning to reach out and to influence American attitudes about China to soften us up. And secondly, as I say, the, the, the espionage, which they have been conducting, which fortunately the, the FBI now has uh, wake, wakened up to, uh, and some 50% of all the cases now that uh, the FBI has about industrial espionage, uh, now there, there is a Chinese connection to them. So that gives you some idea of the extent of their, of their insidious uh, influence throughout our country. Which begs the question, why is Swalwell still, has he not resigned after his, you know, sleeping with a Chinese communist spy? Yes, really. and indeed, indeed. And uh, that's, uh, that's a, it's one of those stories that you wish the, the so-called mainstream media would uh, get after, uh, but uh, we're still waiting, aren't we? Yeah, we're still waiting. We're still waiting. But uh, when we look at the influence, because they also send their students over here, as well as a lot of their, uh, quote, visa workers. But each one is tasked with spying, bringing back as much knowledge and technology back to China that they can. Absolutely, and that's of course the, it's a it's a quid pro quo. And if these Chinese students want to come here at our very good uh, colleges and universities, the payback for them is, as you say, Annie, to collect those secrets and espionage that they possibly can engage in. Uh, I've I've done some research over the years out at Stanford, and the the number of Chinese students there is uh, just breathtaking. Uh, I think something like well, I'm not sure that's particularly at the graduate level, but something like half the students come from come from China, so there are thousands of them there. Just that one that one premier university of ours, Stanford. Yeah, plus they're involved in all of our technology now. Now, with the opening of China to Afghanistan and, of course, the Muslim Caliphate, they have access to all these rare earth minerals. So they control the chip market. Try to repair and replace a chip in your computer or in your car. Unless you can get it from China, it's not going to happen. You know, that's one of the reasons, Annie, why it's so important that we continue to support Taiwan. Because Taiwan, the Republic of China, which is not communist, uh, is the supplier of something like half of the chips that we use in all of our various electrical uh, devices. So it's important that Taiwan not fall under the direct influence and control of, of mainland China, of communist China. Now, as I understand it, uh, more and more nations have pulled out of support in recognizing Taiwan. I think at last I heard there was only 16 nations on this God green earth that are still support sovereignty with Taiwan, 
That's very scary. Yeah, I think your your number is right there, Annie. And this is a part of the campaign that uh, Beijing is conducting against Taiwan to weaken it, cut it off, sever it as much as it possibly can from the rest of the rest of the world. Uh, fortunately, uh, th- there is a recognition of this, uh, and that uh, what is being formed is what's called the Quad, which is some of the non-communist or even anti-communist nations of Southeast Asia and Asia coming together, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and and the U.S., uh, beginning to stand up against this kind of uh, insidious uh, penetration of, of our society. Well, it's about time, because now, of all things, Elon Musk uh, has now opened up a factory in the very province where the Uyghurs, the Muslims, are being held as slave labor. Now, what says you support slavery any better than opening your Tesla factory right smack in the heart of slave labor? Well, you know, that's, that's, that's so, so dis- well, disappointing is too, too weak a word. But uh, when our secretary, the current president, secretary of state, Mr. Mr. Blinken, he said that... Um, what is going on in China, Western China, in the Muslim territories against the Uyghurs? He called it genocide. Uh, now that's a strong word, but uh, the previous Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, a very, very strong and knowledgeable Secretary of State, used the same word. So this gives you uh, an estimate of sort of what is being conducted. In other words, the mainland Chinese, communist China, is trying to wipe out the Uyghurs, the the Islam. There are about 17 million Uyghurs in that part of China, and that is what what Beijing is trying to do, is to eliminate them, to eradicate them, to, uh, to disappear them, if you will. Well, it's not just the Uyghur Muslims. It's also the Fulangang, which they're using for organ harvesting. Uh, it's also political prisoners and those that do not follow the communist char- Chinese version of Christianity, especially if you're Roman Catholic. And unfortunately, we have a pope that supports communist China by allowing them to appoint the bishops in the Catholic Church. Now, does this make any sense? No, it certainly does not, Annie. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a turning away from some very real tragedies which are being committed uh, by by the Chinese communists now they 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 take their sort of their their lead from Marx who said that religion is the opium of the people uh, mm-hmm. and so the Chinese communists want to eliminate as much as possible or to control uh, where where necessary uh, every possible religious faith there except that of believing in what's called President Xi's thought fought. <laughs> yeah, um, yep. Because they are underground, or they call them kitchen uh, churches, uh, that are popping up without the influence of the communist Chinese, and they're trying to shut them down left and right, infiltrate them. I had uh, two friends that were serving in the Wuhan province as missionaries as this pandemic was starting to break out, so we had a heads up 
back in 2019 that something was coming. But here, at least now people are acknowledging it as the communist Chinese virus. And a lot of people are starting to call it. But, you know, it, it's been a long time in the, in the making, and it's amazing how it attacks the DNA in people. And you throw into the fact that now communist China is collecting our DNA. Uh, they've taken over Ancestry.com, and I believe it's also 123, where you're doing those at-home DNA tests. And you're wondering, mm-hmm. what are they doing collecting our DNA and why? They've also been tapping into various other businesses for the DNA, including our government uh, computers, to collect the DNA evidence. This is scary. It is scary, and it, it seems to me that this is all part of, uh, of following the 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 manuscript, if you will, which was written by George Orwell all those years ago in 1984. 1984. Yep. And the <laughs> idea of sort of a big brother watching us at all times. Um, China, as I say, its ambitions right now are, are not just regional but global. And they want to be number one. Uh, they're driven by this, frankly, the idea from Marx and of uh, Lenin, and, and of the communist leaders, Stalin and Mao himself as well, that they want to produce a socialist-slash-communist world. And if you begin uh, totaling up all the various things that they're doing, you can see that uh, they're beginning, they're not beginning, but they're having uh, disturbing success. And it's, it's something that uh, has to be recognized. And there are some people in the Senate, like um, uh, Mr. Rubio, Senator Rubio, and others who uh, are calling attention to this. But we need to have those voices grow even larger and louder uh, to alert the American people to what's going on. Well, if anyone wants to know how bad it is getting, they have now come up with, they're developing the technology of mind control, where one of their soldiers, all he has to do is think, and he doesn't have to be standing near the weapon all you should have to do is think about firing the weapon, and the weapon will fire. Now, that type of warfare is a whole nother plane. It certainly is, and of course, part of this is what what is called brainwashing, Annie. And it's uh, here again talking about history, which is what what I'm into. I'm an historian. That uh, brainwashing began during the uh, during the Korean War. Uh, by by mm-hmm. North Korea, but it, with the help of the Chinese communists, the idea of taking people uh, who are uh, believers or who are patriots and uh, brainwashing them and turning them into a, just a uh, a willing servant, if you will, of uh, yep. of the master, the Manchurian candidate, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, a, it's a heck of a film, a movie, and all too true. Yeah, un- unfortunately. Um, my uh, mother's brother, my uncle, served in Korea, and he was in a mass unit. Um, so he really didn't talk too much about it. But when you hear the stories that are coming back out of there, it is very scary. And now there are videos out there, I believe on TikTok and another I think it's Reddit, of the Museum of uh, Vietnam, the Vietnam War. 
and it, people did not realize how bad our guys had it over there with all these booby traps. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, of course, uh, Annie, if you think about the idea of, of brainwashing on a, on a massive scale, what these re-education, so-called re-education camps for the Uyghurs and for others, uh, what they're doing is taking tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of people and brainwashing them, making them try to uh, automatically respect and admire and and cheer what what the Chinese communists are doing. That same technique of brainwashing, of course, has been uh, implemented by the uh, Kim by the Kims, all the Kims of North Korea, for some seventy seventy years now. Yeah, that's where we have an administration in place that has no idea what they are up against, and it's like they're asleep at the wheel. And unless we start taking back our republic in 2022, um, we need a, ourselves another Ronald Reagan. <laughs> well, that's magic to my ears because he's always been my favorite president. And I think what he did was extraordinary of restoring Americans' confidence in themselves, uh, igniting a period of unparalleled prosperity lasting several decades, and, of course, winning the Cold War was almost without firing a shot through the Reagan doctrine. It's really an extraordinary story. And it's one of the is so much admired by the people, if not by historians. Well, the, I did vote for Reagan, um, but there was two times he upset me. Uh, one when he was attempting to pass the immigration, uh, uh, what's, what's the word I'm thinking of? Amnesty. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, he ang- he angered his conservative base on that one, and I'm trying to remember there was a second thing he did, but it was only two times. But otherwise, he was pretty pretty on track. Well, I think we certainly would would love to have, as you say, another another Ronald Reagan. And uh, I've always believed, of course, that in the crisis like what we're going through right now, uh, uh, great great men and women come come to the fore and will we'll emerge as, as leaders, and I think that will happen. I don't, don't want to get into specifics, but uh, not too far away from where you are in Columbia, there's a pretty fair candidate who happens to be governor of a pretty big state, and uh, I think he's, he's been doing a pretty marvelous job. Are you talking about my McMaster's? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what, what people didn't realize is that Reagan was able to win people over with his wit. He always look, was looking for the next joke line. So he won world leaders over. He won the hearts of the American people over. Uh, but that is how he was able to get a lot of things done. He sort of like disarmed you and made you see his side of the things. And the other thing he did was he had that little kitchen cabinet with Tip O'Neill. So uh. he was able to reach. And a lot of people didn't realize that they would meet and have a couple of drinks or whatever and sit down literally at the kitchen table and just talk. It was a wonderful technique he had of doing that. You're absolutely right. Uh, I've written a couple of books about him, and that's in person, of course. Also, he had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, but also he backed up his humor uh, with uh, with political will 
and political strength when necessary. And one of the reasons why he and Tip O'Neill got along so well is that Tip knew that Reagan had uh, some pretty strong influence on about 40 Democrat members of the House of Representatives. And when, when he, Reagan, needed them, uh, they'd go his way rather than Tip's way. So Tip understood that and, and accepted that as one of the political realities of the day. Yes, it did. Now we're down to our last four minutes. Man, this whole show has just gone on so, so fast. And, Dr. Lee, you know you're always welcome back. I love talking with you. Well, thank you so much, Annie. And you're, you're terrific, and you know so much and remember so much. It's, it's my delight as well. <laughs> well, I'm not as old as you, so that's all right. <laughs> 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 Dr. Lee Edwards, you can be found at heritage.org. And God bless you for the work you do. you got to keep on coming back, sir. My pleasure. Anytime you want me, give me a call. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Take care. Dr. Lee Edwards, check him out at heritage.org. Curtis, we're down to our last few minutes here, and uh, we're already filling up slots for the next couple of weeks. I forget who I got, but we're, like, booked about three weeks out so far and filling fast. But uh, the show is going really fast, and we will be back here next Friday, and hopefully I'll get this video up working properly. I don't know what the heck is going on there. But uh, we yep. were live on, on Facebook. At least we got there. All right? And Vito so will be standing in for me. That's right. Vito Esposito, Mamma Mia, No Sharia, will be guest hosting right. with me. Curtis will be at his brother's funeral. So I leave you with... Uh, Save America by my friend Gary Pecorella. So until then, I say good night, God bless, and be safe out there.